There ain't no sunshine when he's gone And this house just ain't no more Anytime he goes away I am unable to hear myself because there was no volume button. So, welcome everyone to the Tori Sess Show. Today, we're going to visit history a little bit and figure out things that are happening today are quite similar to things of the yesteryear. And I'm also going to give you a bit of a history lesson on certain words, letters, etc., etc., etc. But before we do that, and you'll understand the nice feed, by the way, I spent countless childhood days on those beaches um, every summer, <laughs> shipped out from New York. Sometimes I thought my parents would just leave me there. Um, so you'll understand why, because that has to do with um, stuff that's pertinent to today. So I thought that today we could just start with um, how the banks are now taking positions, right? How Twitter is now taking a position, how these private companies, the corporations in other words, the ones that are the real enemy, right? Everyone else is simply a puppet. People do understand who the enemy is. It's a lot easier to fight, isn't it? But for some reason, people are denying. We want to vilify these evil puppets when in essence the puppeteers are those that are doing this i mean even in texas there is a no mask mandate meaning nobody is forced to wear a mask no city or government can force people to wear masks but private companies can and this is where texans should be like yo my governor says there's no mask and you're making me guess what i'm gonna go somewhere where they're not going to. You know what would have been smart? I'm just, I'm just saying here. If I lived in Texas and I was a shop owner, right, that had like a mom and pop grocery store, right, I would totally be like no mask and I would drop my prices like crazy. And I would advertise like crazy. Why pay Walmart prices? Come over here. I'll give you, I'll take the hit, right, as a loan to instead of selling, you know, whatever cereal somebody gets for $3, which is the going rate, I drop it to $1.50 and be like, come here. That way, it'll be like, this is my re my response to you, the people, to come to me and shop. I'll give you, I'll price match whatever Walmart has. Do you know how quickly they'd go out of business? Almost instantly. They got to smarten up. Coffee shops? Hey, Starbucks is selling you $6 coffee. Guess what? I'll sell you better coffee, less price. Come on over. That's what Texans have to do. This is how you strangulate them, by taking control of what they think they have. Oh, they're bigger. They have more. Don't worry about it. I'll get you more. What is it that you need? Tell me. I'm your local shop. This is how you take control of the corporations, by suffocating their income. That's how you do it. You know what? The government has a right to impose an extra tax, just saying, on private companies that force people to wear a certain article of clothing, because that's what a mask is, an article of clothing, to go in there. That will quickly deter them from applying a mask mandate privately. 
If you are forcing people to wear an article of clothing to enjoy services in my state, you need to pay extra. Huh. You know how quick that'll change? Instantly. So where do we start today? Let's start with a little bit of uh, news. We got nuclear power plants uh, popping up uh, that is going to start in Turkey. Uh, according to Putin and Erdogan, they're working together for a new nuclear power plant. I'm going to tell you what, it's going to be the downfall of Turkey. Here we go. And it's already begun. And remember that this is how it's going to go. Fresh from the fields of Adana, this corn is arriving at the region's largest and oldest food processing unit. Here, it will be converted into dozens of different products. We are collecting corn from all of uh, Anatolia and we are crushing corn to produce many different sectors, from food sector to daily used hygiene products, uh, to cosmetics and even cement that you are right now standing on. From stripping and milling the corn to processing it, operations at this factory require lots of energy. And the company has invested $5 million to build its own power plant. Officials say a cheap and plentiful supply from the national grid would help them save millions more and focus on their core business. Production of electricity is not our uh, main business. We need to source cheaper, more reliable energy from outside to uh, focus our energy on not on electricity building, but on our production. To facilitate businesses like this food processing unit, the government is investing $20 billion to boost electricity generation. The government is building the country's first nuclear power plant in Mersin. When complete, it will produce 4,800 megawatts of electricity, meeting up to 10% of the country's energy needs. It will also cut its dependence on oil and gas imports. Work on the site began in 2018, and many of the auxiliary facilities have already been built. On Wednesday, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and his Russian counterpart Vladimir Putin will kick off the construction of the third of four nuclear reactors. Officials say the project is already driving employment in the region, even though it's not yet up and running. Around 8,000 people are working in the construction zone of the Akkuyu nuclear power plant. Around 80% of these workers are Turkish nationals. The first nuclear reactor is expected to begin generating electricity by 2023. And in another three years, all four reactors will be fully operational. Sonar Group expects its electricity demand to more than double by then. And many other local companies are also looking to the Akuyu nuclear power plant to help grow their businesses. Mubin Nasser, TRT World, Adana. Crazy. So that's going to be crazy. It so has begun. Turkey. They're in the middle of everything. It feels like... Uh, <laughs> Like, everybody dislikes Turkey for some reason. Well, here's another reason people dislike Turkey. Think about it. And you have to dig into the Uyghurs, right? Need you to dig into the Uyghurs, man. Don't take what the media is telling you. If they're pumping it too, you know, 
Uh, people need to be paying attention better. They're pumping. So what is really going on? Take a listen. There's several hundred Uyghur women in Turkey staged a Women's Day march on Monday demanding the closure of mass concentration camps in China's Xinjiang region. The protesters chanted stop the genocide and close the camps as they marched towards China's walled-off consulate in the Turkish city of Istanbul. Most of the demonstrators held up sky blue flags of Uyghur separatists, self-proclaimed state of East Turkestan. Nursaman Abdurasit, one such activist in Turkey, spoke about her ordeal and her long-lost family trapped in the concentration camps of China. She fears that Uyghurs like her may one day be sent back under the extradition deal. Beijing approved the extradition treaty between Turkey and China in December, and with the deal awaiting ratification by Ankara's parliament, Uyghurs living in Turkey fear that this deal might force them to leave the country. We are worried. Why? Because our families are already in a very difficult situation, and we are trying to do something for them. China says that what we are doing is a crime. They say, what you are doing is separatism. You are disparaging the state. If this agreement is ratified, we could be extradited for this crime. The Turkish foreign minister, however, has denied the possibility of any such act of extradition. Ankara's dependency on China for vaccines to fight the COVID-19 outbreak has made the situation worse for the Uyghurs living in Turkey. UN experts suggest that at least 1 million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities have been incarcerated in these camps situated in China's northwest. US and Canada have already called China's treatment of Uyghurs as an act of genocide. China, however, has perpetually denied these accusations of abuses in Xinjiang and has described the camps as vocational centers that help stamp out Islamist extremism. Huh. So which story do you believe? Interesting, right? It's quite interesting because we don't know. But speaking of geography, so yesterday I wanted to watch um, the South Park episode and I was kind of late to it. So since I was late to it, all I could watch was the Daily Show with never with Trevor Noah. Guys, you so have to see this skit. It's called um, Remotely Educational. I'm only going to show you a few minutes of this, but I seriously died laughing. Here we go. Oops, let's get this on. Of course, you've got the Israelis and the Palestinians. I said I'm not getting into it. God damn. All right, let's wrap this up. Last beef, America and everybody else. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to give it to you straight, kids. Every other country hates us. They all hate us. Some of them we invaded. Some of them we overthrew. Most of them we bombed. Some of them we saved from the Nazis. I don't know why they mad. But it is what it is. The game is the game. But that leads me to my tip of the day, kids. If you ever travel abroad, do what I do. Pretend you're Canadian. Hell yeah. You put that maple leaf on your head right there, man. Because see, here's the thing. If it's one country that nobody hates, it's Canada. To be honest, I don't know what that's all about, but I'm going to make it work for me. That's it for today, kids. See you next time in geography class. Eh? Helpful phrases. Spanish. Uh, un burrito de pollo, por favor. 
se agradezco por complacerme mientras ordenó en español aquí en Chipotle. Oh, no, 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 no voy a entenderse si responde. Oh, muchas gracias. One chicken burrito, please. Oh, thank you for allowing me to order in Spanish while I'm here in this Chipotle. Oh, I'm not going to understand if you respond. Thank you very much. Hi, kids. Welcome to Miss Desi's Math for Real Life. Calculus is cool and all, but so if you're good. part of the 99% of adults who don't become math teachers, you'll want to learn some math that you won't learn in school. Now, there are two times normal adults use math. Tipping your waiter 20%. This is only 8%. And buying a home. Buying a home is like getting married. It's a huge decision, and you're only going to do it one to four times in your life. Lucky for you, I'm a licensed real estate agent, like one-third of adults in America, so I can help you through this big decision. Step one, determine your budget. Usually, to buy a house, you'll need to put 20% of the price as a down payment. So for a $500,000 house, you'll need to have $100,000 in savings. But you only have $3,000. Don't worry, we'll figure that out later. Let's move on to the fun part. Step two, find a house. Look at all these beautiful houses. I'm a Victorian. I'm mid-century modern. And, and we're, we're twins. But you can't afford any of these houses. Wait, but what about that one on the end over there? That looks nice. I'm only affordable because a murder happened in me, and I can't stop thinking about it. My walls will never be clean. In realtor speak, we call this character. So let's put an offer in. Step three, put in an offer. An offer is the price you tell the seller you're willing to pay for the house. Let's offer 750k contingent on inspection. I think that's good. Ooh. They counted at two million last and final. I know it's more than we talked about, but I suggest we take it. There's a Saudi shell company right behind you ready to pay all cash. Just a quick thing, I'm paid on commission, so it's really important to me that you buy this house, but not really important to me that you can afford it. So you'll accept? Congrats! On to step four, under contract. Once you've signed the initial contract, now it's time to send a forest worth of paperwork to the bank. They'll need pay stubs, bank statements, W-2s, a credit report, letter from your employer, and your parents' address. Because somebody's going to pay for this house. While you fill all that out, let's get the house inspected. Hello, Mr. Wrench. How's the house looking? Uh, yeah, it's falling apart. You got black mold, the furnace is shot, and the septic system needs to be replaced. That's right, the septic system. I bet you didn't know this house has a big tub of shit under it. It's right next to the well. Step five, closing day. Once the bank approves your paperwork, you sign the final contracts with the previous owner and the bank, and you own the house. Specifically, you own 20% of the house. The rest belongs to the bank. Oh, which reminds me, meet Marty the mortgage. Where's my money? You better have it by the first of the month or your ass will be out in the street. I don't give a crap if it's winter. So remember to pay your mortgage. And be happy because you're living the American dream. You own a home. And that's math class. How business works. This is a factory. It's where we make the products we use. At the loading dock, raw materials arrive to start the process. Inside, workers do specialized... Okay, I want you guys to pay attention to business class because this is going to show you the face of the real enemies of all people. Jobs on the assembly line. 
In the office, managers plan how to move the whole operation overseas. These talks spill over into steak dinners where difficult choices are made. This is the new cheaper factory in Cambodia. With increased profits, shareholders and executives are able to buy yachts, artwork, narcotics, politicians, and memberships in sadistic sex cults. Through this process, America's business leaders keep the country running while turning old factories into loft apartments for their adult children who do filmmaking, photography, and other fake things. This process will be repeated until the system collapses, leaving us scavenging for berries and potable water. And that is how business works. Hmm. This educational show. So I thought that was kind of educational, right? That was incredible. Like I was upset that I missed South Park, um, but I was okay because I saw it this morning. Um, I, d I don't have direct TV and stuff like that. I actually have a YouTube TV, which I get unlimited DVR stuff for it. And all my kids get to share on it and it's all online. So psh, whatever. Um, and I only pay like 65 bucks a month and I've got everything. So, well, not everything. I don't have, you know, Newsmax, <laughs> but, uh, that was actually from the, uh, Trevor Noah show. It's called real education. So he started the whole thing with, um, uh, you know, Hey, you know, now that there's like, you know, control of virus out there and you can't go to school, you need to watch my show. Cause I'm going to give you the important information you need to know. So the geography class, unfortunately the opening wasn't on my DVR. Uh, cause, uh, you know, I didn't start it from there. I started it from what I was watching rather than the show itself on the DVR, uh, the DVR, meaning the cloud access of it. And he started it with, you know, hey, this is geography class, but, you know, who knows where this country is? I'm going to give you geography you really need to know. And this is like all the people that hate each other, all the countries that hate each other. And she, you know, fell back on the, let's focus on being Canadian because no one will bother us. Now, speaking of Canadians, <laughs> I saw a comment. It was like, get out of here. Uh, but yeah, that, that was um, incredible. Uh, I found it funny. Uh, for those of you that may have on-demand comedy channel, uh, totally would recommend watching it. Now, everything seems to be comedic, right? Uh, everything's funny. They're making fun of the fact that, you know, we're slaves. We're in invisible chains and have been, right? And I guess you do need a little bit of comedy for the problems we have. And today, I'm going to show you how many revolutions we've actually had. Uh, and we're going to go to the most ancient revolution where a movement started in the 500s BC. Uh, we're also going to visit St. Paul's footsteps, that nice, you know, intro video that I was showing this nice, you know, beachside is, uh, from the area of Corinth, right? Um, Corinth is quite an important place. That's where, uh, a conspiracy theory actually was born. Uh, actually, yeah. It was totally. And um, I thought it would be good to take a look at it, but let's just see how the corporations are freaking out now, specifically Twitter. Obviously, Texas is making headway in um, moving along the whole process of, yeah, um, 
we don't do slavery in the Lone Star State. So obviously Twitter has something to say about it. Their stock is tumbling. Nobody wants to pay to see your tweets. Here we go. Twitter is suing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. The company accuses Paxton of using his office to retaliate against Twitter for banning former President Trump. Colin Frederickson brings us more. Twitter is suing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton. The social media giant accuses Paxton of abusing his authority, intimidation and harassment. Twitter claims Paxton is targeting the company in retaliation for exercising their First Amendment rights. At issue are Twitter's moderation policies, including the decision to suspend former President Trump's account. Paxton says deplatforming Trump had a chilling effect on free speech. He also says social media companies operate like monopolies and should be regulated like utilities. Normally, I'd say you're right. Private company can do what they want and, and consumers have choices. Here, consumers don't have a choice. They have no choice. And so we have to regulate that and make sure that free speech is not being controlled by a few very wealthy uh, uh, tech people. Paxton is now demanding information on Twitter's moderation policies and practices. Twitter says in the lawsuit wait, that disclosing its... Wait, let's just rewind. He almost had a Freudian slip. I want you guys to hear it. Okay, I want you to hear what he said carefully. See if we could put it on the captions. And should be regulated like utilities. Normally I'd say you're right. Private company can do what they want and the consumers have choices. Here consumers don't have a choice. They have no choice. And so we have to regulate that and make sure that free speech is not being controlled by a few very wealthy uh, uh, tech people. Paxton is now demanding information on very wealthy uh, tech people. What was he going to say? Oh, corporations? I think so. Twitter's moderation policies and practices. Twitter says in the lawsuit that disclosing its moderation policies could undermine their effectiveness. The company also says Paxton's demands run afoul of the First Amendment. Twitter argues it has the right to make decisions about what content to disseminate on its platform. The company is asking the court to block Paxton. So in other words, they're a publisher. Paxton's efforts to obtain the information or otherwise probe Twitter's internal decisions. He has every right to. It's called discovery. Now. How's this? The new Commerce Secretary may have potential conflicts of interest because of a Chinese company. I wonder who leaked that. And a senator is questioning the NBA's deal with a Chinese propaganda mouthpiece. Hmm, I wonder who leaked that. Oh, emoluments, anyone? We talked about this. NTD's Tiffany Meyer has more. The U.S. Commerce Secretary owns a stake in a major Chinese tech corporation and parent company to Chinese messaging app WeChat. The news comes to light at the same time the Commerce Department is reviewing a ban on the app. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo and her husband own a stake in tech company Tencent. Their share is valued between $20,000 and $45,000. That's based on a financial disclosure filed in January with the Office of Government Ethics. Prior to her recent confirmation as Commerce Secretary, Ormondo promised to divest her other financial stakes to avoid potential conflicts of interest. But she failed to mention the Tencent stake. Ramondo and her husband did not invest directly into Tencent. They invested into two funds composed of foreign stocks, though Tencent holds the biggest position in the two funds. The Biden administration is reviewing the previous administration's executive orders related to China including the order that banned transactions with Tencent. I know, right? You know, because General Jones, Call of Duty, all of that stuff. 
So interesting. Here's something else interesting that's, well, let's just say. So this is just to wet people's feet. On we've dug in so deep, we found your foreign investment mutual funds, and we're picking them apart. So as they're scattering, trying to cover up mutual funds, we got this. Wonder who leaked that. Don't let YouTube decide what information you get. That's your choice. YouTube is deleting our videos and cuts you off from a source of honest reporting. Make sure you don't lose access to NTD's news content and take a quick moment to subscribe to our newsletter so no matter what happens here, you'll keep your access to a trustworthy news source. The entire staff and every consultant of the Nevada Democratic Party has quit. This is after Democratic Socialists won every key leadership position of the party in a contested election on Saturday. NTD's Grace Coulter has the story. If you go onto the Nevada Democratic Party website, you will see that not a single staff member is listed. This is because every staff member quit after Democratic Socialists won all party leadership roles on Saturday. According to The Intercept, Judith Whitmer, the newly elected party chair, was notified by the party's executive director, Alana Mounts, that the entire party's staff and all consultants were resigning. Staffers claimed that Whitmer was going to fire them anyway, but she denied those claims. Whitmer won with the backing of the local chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America. Wow, look at that. Communists. Ooh. We should talk about communists. Let's talk about communists. We should. But before we talk about communists, let's talk about how they're coming after everything you have if you don't approve of communists. Remember, I did a whole show on the DSA, uh, a whole show, and also showed uh, a lot of other things years ago about the DSA. And how's about some positive news? Welcome back, everybody. Sales for Kefefe Coffee surged nearly 8,000%, 8,000% after Chase Bank tried to cancel them. The company says they were- Do you know who owns that company? It's an awesome guy in far North Dakota really good friend of mine. He, he, he owns this company. He owns this company. Canceled for being pro-Trump. Chase reportedly banned Kefefe from using their services, saying their payment processor was used for activities prohibited by their terms of service. Trina Minetta away in all this, much more is Trish Regan. She is the host of the Trish Regan Intel podcast. Hey, Trish, nice to see you. You know, sales have skyrocketed for not just Kefefe Coffee, other conservative companies after the left's attempts to cancel them, MyPillow, Goya Foods, Dr. Seuss Books, uh, to name a few. Kefefe coffee sales surging nearly 8,000%. You know, that, that tells me something. That tells me that we normal folks far outnumber the cancel culture. What do you say? What I would say is that a lot of people are, are trying to voice their opinion, if you would, in these more silent ways, right? Whether it's drinking a certain kind of coffee whether it's buying a, a certain children's book, Dr. Seuss, they're, they're trying to effectively, Chris, express their freedom of speech in ways that they can right now because the reality is, right, people can't. People can't actually say what they think. I mean, there was a time just a, a month or so ago when they were uh, actually shutting down Ron Paul's Facebook page because he was talking about patriotism too much and freedom too much, I guess. They never really gave him a reason. That's all I can come up with. But, you know, when, when you say something like the expression, the state motto from the state that I grew up in, live free or die, and that suddenly takes on all these connotations that it frankly shouldn't. 
I mean, that, that should be kind of one of our basic tenets and principles, live free or die, then you run into this whole other situation. I think that's what you're seeing reflected right now. People are trying to voice their opinion by supporting certain products that they know the establishment doesn't want them to have. Yep. Speaking of which, Disney Plus restricting access to classic films, Dumbo, Peter Pan for offensive behavior. Turner Classic TV Network will also examine politically incorrect films like Gone with the Wind and Breakfast at Tiffany's. But the woke mob has no issue glorifying Cardi B's song of the year for 2020, WAP. Uh, th this is what's up is down. What's right is wrong, seems to me, Trish. Look, I mean, a lot of those movies that they're going after and they're examining right now um, are, are movies that I think are kind of important. My Fair Lady is on that list. There's actually three Audrey Hepburn movies on that list out of 18. So wow. uh, Turner apparently has it out for Audrey Hepburn. But you think about My Fair Lady, and I remember seeing that play as a kid. I remember watching that movie, and I came away with a, a sense that that was a very independent woman who was struggling in the time in which she lived. If you remember at the end, she says to Higgins, you know what, I had a lot more freedom when I was a flower girl. Now you've put all these restraints and constrictions around me and it's much harder. I mean, that to me was an important commentary, Chris, on where women have been, right, historically. And you ought to be able to watch something like that and come away from it with an appreciation for how far women have come. And I think all of these films, you have to basically understand the time in which they were written or they were filmed. And, you know, Peter Pan, that's a great classic. Another play and movie I loved mm -hmm. as a kid. And some of the others on there, Aristocats. Yeah. I was like, wait a second, the Aristocats, what's wrong with the Aristocats? Or I want them to come after Johnny Bravo so the millennials will freak out. Or what was that called? Uh, the, the stupid dog, curious dog. Yeah. Well, let me show you some of Nick's commercials. So cool. So cool. For Cafefe Coffee, so cool. <laughs> Wait, there's another one. <laughs> that was good, right? Don't let that happen to you when you run out of coffee. That's totally me. But then there's uh, this one that's my favorite commercial ever created uh for this brand and this is showing you what other coffee brands are like okay watch this wait oh shoot hold on let's get the sound going this is so cool please clap please clap so just now um amazon actually uh banned the sale of cafe coffee uh just so you know oops hold on no how to paint like a feminine oh let's hey watch there. this why not I'd like to welcome back for another episode Okay, like that was random. I'd like to invite you to pull up a chair and sit down for a mandatory equal opportunity brief from a successful minority figure that's going to tell us, the white people, how difficult it is to be successful as a minority. 
that's already successful. Moving on. But first, before we get started painting this beautiful white masterpiece, I mean masterpiece, I'm sorry, I just drank some Coca-Cola and I'm trying to suppress my whiteness. I should be apologetic for that after all. I'd like to give a shout out to the show's sponsor. And many of you are asking, well, hey, John, Ross, how do you stay so calm? Well, it's not because I've been there cranking out on the old hammer tube about three times a day trying to keep my mind clear. It's because I take Shell Shock CBD. That's right, it's actually my company. And it's made right here in America. No Chinese foreign imports, organically grown, right here in the good old US of A. You'll be so glad you whited, or tried it. So we're gonna go ahead and get started with our lovely little masterpiece here. And we're gonna go ahead and have my handy dandy producer run those colors across the bottom of the screen. We're gonna have Coca-Cola Red. We're gonna have BLM Black. And we're gonna have White Gelt White. Very simple color He's combination. Bob Ross I think you awesome, kinda right? see what's coming. Hell, even Stevie Wonder could have seen that coming. Oh, sorry. Should have made fun of him because of his sight. Another successful minority I probably shouldn't have brought up. I actually like to go ahead and issue a public apology for making fun of a blind minority. I probably shouldn't have done that. You know, uh, hindsight being 2020 and all, I'll probably come and regret this later when they try and cancel me on YouTube. But I just want to go ahead and make an apology now before the woke mob comes after me. But it's okay though. I have a, a black friend that's blind. That's how it works, right? That's how it works. We can do that. We can say that. No. Oh, I forgot. It's kind of like the M word. Only black people can say that. <laughs> Weird. So we're going to go ahead and start with our first color. We're going to start with some, some BLM black. Oh, that's gray. A little, little sneaky on you there. Well, it looked black from the outside, but I guess it's gray on the inside. Weird. So we've got our, uh, our canvas here that we previously coated in a nice layer of liquid white privilege. So we're going to do what we can now to make this less white. It's, it's actually not real black because it didn't vote for Biden. So, because you know, if Trump would have made a statement like that, then you know, he'd probably be impeached again, not even in office. <laughs> I'm dying. Who else is dying? This was the best so go ahead and start video that our, just came up. Our first coat we here. just go with it. Everything within our power to make this less white. I don't even know what we're painting, but Bob Ross wig is, is just cover it. up all this whiteness because we can't have it here. You know, if you drink a sugary drink, they've suddenly become the subject matter experts on diversity and what it means to be less white and how bad black people are oppressed or excuse me, minorities. I meant to say minorities, not black people specifically, because that would just be targeting a certain minority demographic, even though Uber Eats and other companies such as Snapchat and Instagram are featuring just black businesses but not any other minority like Irish or, you know, uh, Chinese or Japanese or, or, or any other minority that's actually been oppressed in the past, not even just in America, but hey, we have to focus only on black people. Well, why do you think that is? If all minority lives matter, if minorities are truly being targeted by the white man, as the MSM claims it is, why are these other minorities not saying anything? Interesting. If there was ever an ad or a, a training slide or anything out there that was run by a large-scale corporation that said try to be less black, oh, that would be inherently racist, wouldn't it? But if we say it towards white people, well, it's perfectly acceptable. 
for real. Just like, I don't know if I guys, if I actually said it on air, but I was, I did. Didn't I? I am so miffed about what Apple did to me. I am so miffed, you know, that the woman next to me had her mask like off her face. She was chewing on the mask, right? It was half off her face, but because her skin color was different from mine, they didn't dare say anything, but because I'm paler now, actually today I'm a bit yellow, but usually I'm very pale. She like had a go at me and I'm like, are you discriminating against me because of my color? And it's like, so I, you can't be racist against me. I see that all the time. Uber Eats and DoorDash. Oh, you know, black businesses. And it's like, well, what about chi Chinese ones, Korean ones, Greek ones, Italian ones? Oh, they, they, they're fine. Indian, you know, Himalayan food, you know, it's really good. Yemeni food. That, that, that's like, there's like a Yemeni place here. Oh man. And then I, um, this Arabic place, I had some kafta. Oh, so good. Capsa. So good. Capsa is like, just like normal. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I think it's like around lunchtime. It is lunchtime. <laughs> so I'm like hungry and talking about food. This is so bad. All right. So let's talk about communists, nationalists, and China's revolution crash course in history. This is actually quite good. Even though it's coming from a far uh, oppressed, you know, apologetic man who hates fascists, he kind of makes our case himself while showcasing the Chinese. To return, sadly, for the last time on Crash Course to China. By the way, Stan brought cupcakes. Oh, good. I wish I could draw some parallel between this and China, but I got nothing. They're just delicious. Oh, sure miss you piece of felt Danica cut out in the shape of China using blue because we felt like red would be cliche. Mr. Green, Mr. Green, Mr. Green! You don't get to talk until you shave the mustache me from the past. So the 20th century was pretty big for China because it saw not one, but two revolutions. China's 1911 revolution might be a bigger deal from a world historical perspective than the more famous communist revolution of 1949, but you wouldn't know it because one, China's communism became a really big deal during the Cold War, and two, Mao Zedong, the father of communism, China was really good at self-promotion. Like, you know, his famous book of sayings? Pretty much everyone in China just had to own it. And I mean, had to. Wait, speaking of had to. So, yesterday, um, my daughter had planned, like, this thing to take me to, like, this restaurant um, with church family friends. And um, we were sitting there talking and everyone's, you know, that's there has traveled, et cetera, et cetera. And my um, one friend, Marina, said to me, you know, in, at the, in the USSR, if children weren't wearing the red tie for communism, you know, they'd get shamed and you'd be in trouble. Some people thrown in jail. And I'm like, oh, kind of like the masks. So if you're not wearing it, you're in trouble. Kind of like he said. Oh, everybody wanted to own it. No, they had to own it. That's the point. They're forcing you, just like all communists do, to wear something to show your compliance. So as you no doubt recall from past episodes of Crash Course, China lost the opium wars in the 19th century, resulting in European domination, spheres of influence, etc., all of which was deeply embarrassing to the Qing dynasty and led to calls for reform. One strand of reform that called for China to adopt European military technology and education systems was called self-strengthening, and it probably would have been a great idea considering how well that worked for Japan. But it never happened in China. Well, at least not until recently. Instead, China experienced the disastrous anti-Western boxer rebellion of 1900, which helped spur some young liberals 
liberals, including one named Sun Yat-sen, to plot the overthrow of the dynasty. Oh, it's already time for the open letter. An open letter to Sun Yat-sen. Oh, but first let's see what's in the secret compartment today. Oh. More champagne poppers. Stan, at this point, aren't we sort of belaboring the fact that China invented fireworks? Wow. That is innovation at work right there. We used to not be able to fire off one of these. Now we can fire off six at a time if you count the two secret ones from behind me. Dear Sun Yat-sen, you were amazing. I mean, the Republic of China calls you the father of the nation. The People's Republic of China calls you the forerunner of the democratic revolution. You're the only thing they can agree on. You lived in China, Japan, the United States. You converted to Christianity. You were a doctor. You were the godfather of an important science fiction writer. But the infuriating thing is that you never actually got much of a chance to rule China, and you would have been great at it. I mean, your three principles of the people, nationalism, democracy, and the people's livelihood, are three really great principles. I mean, the problem, aside from you not living long enough, is that you just didn't have a face for Warhol portraits. Wait, did he just admit that nationalism and being for the people was a good thing? But yet he hates Trump. Oh, it's too bad. Best wishes, John Green. So the 1911 revolution that led to the end of the Qing dynasty started when a bomb accidentally exploded, at which point the revolutionaries were like, we're probably going to be outed, so we should just start the uprising now. The uprising probably would have been quelled like many had before, except this time the army joined the rebellion because they wanted to become more modern. The Qing emperor abdicated and the rebels chose a general, Yuan Shikai, as leader, while Sun Yat-sen was declared president of a provisional republic on January 1st, 1912. A new government was created with a senate and a lower House and it was supposed to write a new constitution and after the and the Americans couldn't have that right two presidents again the first election Sun Yat-sen's party the Guomindong were the largest but they weren't the majority so Sun Yat-sen deferred to Yuan which turned out to be a huge mistake because he then outlawed the Guomindong party and ruled as dictator but then when Yuan Shikai died in 1916 China's first non-dynastic government in over 3,000 years completely fell apart localism reasserted itself with large-scale landlords with small-scale armies ruling all the parts of China that weren't controlled by foreigners you might remember this phenomenon from earlier in Chinese history first during the warring states period and then again for 300 years between the end of the Han and the rise of the Shui. So the period in Chinese history between 1912 and 1949 is sometimes called the Chinese Republic, although that gives the government a bit too much credit. The leading group trying to reform China into a nation state was the Guomindong, but after 1920, the Chinese Communist Party was also in the mix. And for the Guomindong to regain power from those big landlords and reunify China, they needed some help from the CCP. Now, if an alliance between communists and nationalists seems like a match made in hell, well... Yes, it was. That said, the two did manage to patch things up for a while in the early... Wait, are they not doing the same thing right now? Aren't the Democratic Socialists of America the commies? Aren't the Socialist commies? Because they're not calling themselves commies, they're not commies. You see, these people contradict their own stuff when talking about other nations. I just wanted to point that out. And we're going to stop this crash course because I want to talk to you guys about more interesting stuff. Um, about revolutions. I don't want to go into the tea tax. You know, we should actually. Um, but let's, uh, let's go to, where's the Good Morning America clip I had for you guys? Gosh darn it. Is it not here? It's got to be here. I'm going to be very upset if it isn't. Let me see. Because I needed to show it to you. There we go. So in February, I talked to you guys about the dangers of uh, this uh, vaccine. And I actually, um, the vaccines, I actually discussed disease X 
last year this time where, you know, there were people dying from a mysterious disease. That's coming into focus again. It's almost annual. And you would think, oh, that's funny. We get disease X's and all these scares during flu season. So I want you guys to listen to this Good Morning America report from a week ago. Take a listen. With the numbers, the latest from Johns Hopkins University, 28.7 million confirmed cases in the U.S. right now. And that number, that staggering number, continues to go up. 516,000 American lives lost to the virus. The number of Americans now fully vaccinated, that goes up as well. CDC reporting now more than 26.1 million Americans have now received both doses of the COVID-19 vaccine. And we'll have some that will be just getting that one dose at some point as well, right? Very soon, actually. And Dr. Jen, yes, lots of, you know, positive news coming out from this COVID-19 virus. And yet at the same time, I hate to be uh, the bearer of bad news, but there's this word of a new virus that is actually generating A travel warning, just a new update about Ebola. And it's a reminder, you guys, that the world is focused on COVID, but there are other infectious diseases that we need to keep our eye on. So here's what you need to know. Uh, Recent warnings from the World Health Organization about a new Ebola outbreak in Guinea. They're tracking at least 17 cases there. In the DRC, Democratic Republic of the Congo, there have been at least eight cases, half of them fatal. The CDC recently issuing an alert to travelers saying that all travelers coming into the United States from those areas will now be funneled to six U.S. airports and tracked once they arrive here. And the CDC also issuing a recent level three travel advisory to both of those areas. Let me tell you something. So if you remember, where were the people coming from through the border? They were coming from Africa, West Africa. They were getting fake passports from Venezuela and walking up to those caravans. So all of these countries that supposedly have this Ebola outbreak, which is a pretty big deal, right, um, are coming in through the southern border and Biden is letting them go through free and clear. Now, last year, if you remember, I talked about disease X and how I said this is them tinkering with Ebola. I also showed you how the World Health Organization was like, yeah, we don't have like any idea how to cure Ebola. It's just changing all the time. And we're a little bit confused. This is them tinkering with vaccines and backfirings. Remember kind of like yesterday, how I showed you all these kids in Africa that instantly died when they were being vaccinated, supposedly to not get the pneumonia. Well, here's disease X again, only last month. And they're talking about it again. And this disease X is weirder and weirder. We will all be able to breathe a sigh of relief in 2021. Scientists have warned about the possibility of an outbreak of a disease more contagious than COVID-19 and just as deadly as Ebola. Welcome to TV9 News. I'm your host, Ashish Parekh. And in this video, we'll be talking about a particular disease that has been termed disease X. Well, the scientist who discovered the Ebola virus disease way back in 1976 has now warned against a fresh set of potentially fatal viruses, among which one is called disease X. He's also said that many of these diseases which are on the verge of spreading could be deadlier than Ebola and also may spread faster than the coronavirus. Now, CNN quoted Professor Jean Jacques Mwembe Tampoum from Co. Congo, revealing how a number of new viruses are being expected to come to light in an act which he describes as a threat. 
for humanity. But why did Professor Tampo make this, make this particular statement all of a sudden? Well, the scientist's statement comes close to the heels of a patient being infected by a pathogen that has not yet been identified, but also you know shows symptoms similar to that of Ebola. In fact, in December, a woman in a remote village in Congo showed early signs of fever following which her samples were sent to testing. And these were sent to test them for Ebola and other diseases which have pretty similar symptoms. However, surprisingly, all the tests turned out to be negative and no one could figure out what exactly happened. This illness still remains a mystery. Now, some scientists have speculated that the woman could be the patient zero of this enigmatic disease X, which researchers say could be more contagious than COVID-19 and 50 to 90% deadlier than the Ebola virus. In 2008, in fact, the World Health Organization, the WHO, published its global plan for accelerating research and development during health emergencies and also included disease X in its 2018. From an unknown pathogen, they already wrote a paper about it. And I told you about all these people in Africa dying of dying from it last year it's kind of like oh i see i see so we're gonna play like that so i saw this um video of um what are the symptoms of the tony flu? tony robbins um this is a minute clip i want you guys to listen to this before we break because we're going to be learning some history today some history that is going to dispel a lot of things so this this clip of Tony Robbins was like, damn, Tony, you kind of be woke right now, right? <laughs> Take a listen. People have already published it again and again. And what it shows is the same number of people have died this year, 2020, has died in 2019, 2018, 2017, 2016, and 2015. 2.8 million people. It's within 10 to 15,000 people every year. The same number of old people died in 2020. The only difference is when they looked by disease. Heart disease, for the first time in 30 years, has come down. Cancer has come down. But COVID has gone up in the exact proportions. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Same number of people died. By the way, in case you haven't noticed, the flu has disappeared. It's flatlined. What are the symptoms of the flu? And by the way, flu kills people, and especially kills older people. So we're living in a world where a lot of people might be overreacting because they're trying to protect us because they found it a 3% mortality rate or 4%. That would be a pandemic. But today, depending on whose research you read, it's 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, which is the same as the flu. <laughs> and if you're under 50, it's way below that. So we live in a world that if we let people control our focus, we're just going to live in fear and do nothing. And we're going to be people that manage our circumstances. But I don't believe you were created. I was created. I don't think the universe or God, whatever you believe, created us to just manage shit. I believe we're here to create things. Who's with me? Here to create love and joy and relationship and business and life? Say I. People have already published it again and again. I say I too. We're here to create love and, and promote love and work together as one. Now let's take a quick break because I'm going to be dispelling some stuff. I'm going to fight them all. 
Seven Nation Army couldn't hold me back. They're gonna rip it off. Taking their time right behind my back. And I'm talking to myself at night because I can't forget. Back and forth through my mind behind a cigarette. And the message coming from my eyes says, Leave it alone. Don't want to hear about it. Every single one's got a story to tell. Everyone knows about it. From the Queen of England to the Hounds of Hell. And if I catch you coming back my way, I'm gonna sell it to you. And that ain't what you want to hear, but that's what I'll do. And the feelings coming from my phone to says find a home. I'm gonna wait to die. Far from this awful for forevermore. I'm gonna work the strong. Make the sweat drip out of every pore And I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding and I'm bleeding right before the Lord All the words are gonna bleed from me and I will sing no more And the things coming from my blood tells me go back home Go back home. So going back home. <laughs> well, I'm going to take you to my roots. And um, I am going to take you to understand how important history is and how many things can be dispelled when understood. So this is one of the first coins ever in a place called Corinth. In fact, Corinth used to be the center of one of the biggest revolutions that happened. It was the revolution of not having tyrants and to not have good tyrants. So I'm going to be dispelling a lot of things because I get really tired when people, you know, take things that they think they know and they talk about things they think they know. But I want you to pay attention to this coin. There's something very specific on it. And I'll take you to it so you see it better. <sighs> okay. Can I unzoom now? Corinthos. It used to be, it was where this letter was born, the Copa. Mm, this is a zoom in, just so you know. 
So it used to be like this. This was the center um, of a movement. And it represented the center of a very ancient revolution. And it's an archaic revolution of the people. This was, this is my, this is where I come from. You know, my, my line comes from, uh, and you know, I like to brag about that part that, you know, I descend from real revolutionaries and, um, it was very important for me also because St. Paul went there and the relationship, uh, that he had of, um, with the church there and how the movement was sent. Actually, it's a letter to the Corinthians. And he was in Corinth, and he died in Corinth. He stayed there. Uh, so for those that want to know history. So I found this great little clip. And we're not going to watch all of it because it's quite, is it? Is it this one? Quite long. Hold on. It's the wrong one. Give me a second. Um, where the ancient revolution the archaic revolution um, was about tyrants and how they made themselves seem like they were good tyrants, So, but they were still tyrants. And people got tired of it. And so this is how democracy was born, actually. Democracy in the sense of that the people... The word democracy means that you are ruled by yourself, by the people. And um, uh, there is leadership that steers the people, uh, and they were called kivernitas, um, which means the leader or the guider, uh, but not the ruler. So this guy did some good work, and I thought we can listen to him. And um, I also found some other little neat, clips uh, that you'll appreciate to understand the history of some things. Welcome to the Archaic Revolution. We're going to cover four main themes or issues this week. First is the formation of the polis. The Archaic period was the time of the formation of the polis. We're going to talk about the way that these polis were created, how they were governed, and compare them to the type of organization called an ethnos. Next, we're going to look at forms of government of these polis. We're going to look at oligarchy, tyranny, and the relationship of the demos, or the people, to the tyrant, because it's a pretty interesting symbiotic relationship. Next, we're going to look at the hoplite revolution, army innovation, hoplite warfare, and the development of the phalanx. Finally, we're going to look at Panhellenic Greece, particularly the Panhellenic sanctuaries of Olympia and Delphi, and how they compare to the culture of these local polis. So the Archaic period lasted from 776 BCE to around 479 BCE. That is, it started in the 8th century and lasted till the beginning of the 5th. It's sometimes dated from the writing of the Homeric poems, but 776 is the date of the first playing or the first celebration of the Olympic Games. And 479 is the date of the end of the Persian Wars. So the Archaic period lasts from when the Olympic Games started to be played to the end of the Persian Wars. In the Archaic period, iron began to be worked with new sophistication. The population of Greece grew, and the alphabet was taken over from Phoenicia in the east. Colonies began to be sent out in a more organized way in this period. This is a topic we're going to touch on later. Crucially, the 8th century was also the age of polis formation and political synoicism. 
Perhaps the formation of the polis was a result in part of the colonizing movement. Also, the archaic period dealt with the rise of religion. And let me explain what polis and synochism is. Polis is city. Uh, synochism is the word for synochism, which means a smaller faction of a city. So like counties, you want to call it? Just leagues and amphictinies that grew up around Delphi and Olympia. Now the people, the demos, were the citizens of the polis. The polis was the geographical area of the city and its surrounding territory, making up a single self-governing political unit. There was shared religious worship among the citizens of a polis. The political system of the polis usually consisted of an assembly of fighting men, which were the citizens, and then a council of elders, which advised this assembly. Each polis had its own religion, shrines, and most were quite small. Some were, most were in one main city and its surrounding plain. That is a few small villages that needed to unite into this polis structure. We're going to start here with a theme that's going to continue, which is a comparison between two of the most famous and large polis in the archaic and classical period, that is Athens and Sparta. Athens and Attica, which is the area surrounding Athens, was relatively large with many towns spread out around its periphery. Now Sparta and Laconia, Sparta had actually conquered violently its nearby areas and enslaved its inhabitants to work for them, was a different dynamic. Another important term to focus on here is synoicism. This term refers to the combination of several smaller communities to form a single large polis or community. So sometimes this union did not affect the dynamics of the population dispersal or the settlements or the physical existence of separate communities within the polis. And this is actually what is supposed to have happened to Athens when its synoicism is attributed to Theseus. In other times, synoicism was conceived of as a sort of cohesive migration of citizens to the new city. So here is Attica. We have Ramnus, Marathon to the northeast, the site of the famous battle. We have Sunion, the site of the temple of Poseidon to the southeast. Other famous sites include Decalia and Eleusis to the west. These are just some of the important population centers of Attica. Athens is the polis proper of Attica, and it contains the Acropolis. The Greeks define themselves as belonging to a polis. The polis and Greece are inseparable. Aristotle says that, quote, humans are beings who by nature live in a polis. Now, in contrast, an ethnos was a regional territory without a unifying urban center or central government. It was just a loose association of autonomous towns and villages. Still, it still had a sense of identity as a single people. Crucially, members of an ethnos worshipped the same gods and had the same federal sanctuary, as well as a means to reach communal decisions. Actually, the word ethnos now is um, interpreted as such um, as nation, uh, meaning that you have uh, common beliefs and that you uh, feel that um, these things are common to you and your social identity is the same. Now, I want to get to his tyranny um, discussion because this is where you understand what tyranny is. The signal developments of the archaic period in Greece, which was tyranny. Now, rivalry between the powerful aristocratic family clans often led to violence and civic disorder in these polis, and eventually to the rise of a single ruler called the tyrant. Usually, the demos, which was a general citizen body, the common citizens, might support a single ambitious aristocrat making promises to overthrow the feuding unjust ruling oligarchy and put a stop to the civic violence and elite exploitation of the common man. 
Some common methods of obtaining a tyranny were a would-be tyrant would explicitly claim to be the champion of the people, would defend their interests versus the rich most of the time, and in a mechanical sense, in order to take power, a would-be tyrant would fake an attack from abroad and actually ask for a bodyguard from the common people in order to get control. This was the tactic of... Did you hear that? Fake an attack from abroad to gain power. Sounds like it's an old playbook, right? The Athenian tyrant, Pisistratus. You could also get support from another would-be tyrant that would be your friend. And this is the Athenian Cylon tried to do. Of course, often the demos, the common people, were not fully satisfied with the rule of an aristocracy either as compared to an aristocracy or an oligarchy. Individual aristocrats craved more power. As a result, some of these ambitious aristocrats would strike out on their own and make claims that they're going to bring the ruling class to justice and end civic violence, as we mentioned. Once one of these individuals would gain popular support like this and get elected through the support of the demos, they may have enough power to overthrow the government and hang on to their power. And this, in essence, is the tyranny. Later traditions maintained, usually in a sense of wishful thinking or just hope, that the power of a tyranny was naturally short-lived. Whether this is true or not, it's hard to say. That as a hereditary system, usually a tyranny would pass on their power to their descendants. And as this hereditary system sort of developed or drew out, support usually ran out for the tyranny after one or two generations. Tyranny was, in fact, hard to maintain because, first, the opposition from the excluded elite. Obviously, these are your natural enemies. Did you hear that? So tyranny, guys, is people that are elitists, that have power, that want to take the power from other people that have power. It's like, you know, when you see um, people in the same field trying to outdo each other, it's competition of who gains control. But in fact, what he's explaining is it would constantly be in somebody's control. So tyranny doesn't really decline. It would just change hands and never going to the people. That is in fact, what we've been going through as a nation, going from the Democrats to the Republicans, the Republicans to the Democrats, when they're one in the same, with just a different color, face, or rhetoric. Once they gain popular support, they take power. Then you get tired of their bullshit, and then the next one comes in. Because they gain power, because they don't like the previous tyranny. You see? Second, they often didn't do much to further the interests of the polis as a whole. Of course, there are some exceptions to this. Patronage of the arts and infrastructure are two. So these are your two natural enemies if you're a tyrant. Obviously, most importantly, the excluded elite, which you, the aristocracy who you've totally disenfranchised, and then the demos who have been responsible for your elevation, but you have to maintain their support. So what is he pointing out? The elitists that you've excluded are your enemies. And also the people, which is the demos, which are the people, hence democratic. It's the the people, demo, that rule themselves, right? That's what democratic means. Demos means the people. So the enemies of a tyrant are those elitists that you've excluded and the people you've disappointed. So now we see that Biden is in office, right? Supposedly, right? He's in office right now. Who's upset? the socialists of America that are also elitist, the corporations that aren't rolling with the other corporations, right? The other elitists that are different than the majority, which are the big corporations, and then the people, the disappointed people. Because it's like all the minorities and all these people that are begging the government for money, 
put a fake administration in and what happened? Gas prices go up. So now you don't get to go anywhere. So they use you to get into power and then they just disappoint you because it doesn't matter. They know they're going to be there one or two generations, one or two terms. Then they're going to hand the baton over to the next one. And it'll be the enemies of that tyrant. That's the way it goes. So in order to maintain their power, tyrants would often resort to uh, payoffs or bribes of exiles or just executions. And this obviously couldn't go on forever. One's list of friends as a tyrant would shrink to minuscule proportions and your list of enemies would grow exponentially. And unfortunately, you couldn't exile or kill them all, although some tried. The upshot of all this is by the end of the Archaic period, by around 500 BCE, just before the Persian Wars, the tyrannies are all disappearing. And I'll tell you what, in 535 BC, well, it was 555 BC to be exact, the Copa movement arose in Greece, in Corinth. And that's where you see the first coin with the Q on it, just so you know. The Spartan policy of overthrowing tyrannies, especially and crucially the Pisistratids of Athens, contributed to the decline of tyranny in the late Archaic period. In their place, these groups, these cliques of aristocratic ruling classes, the oligarchies, would pop back up less often, but occasionally a democracy would pop up. And this is what happened in 5th century Athens. So still, it is fundamental to recognize that tyranny itself is not a retrograde step back from aristocracy or oligarchy per se. It's a development from these, and its development is actually evidence of the growing power of the demos at the time of, in the Archaic period. Tyrants all base their claim to power on popular support. If we take just one simple example, let's take, for example, the famous story in Herodotus of Periander of Corinth and the advice he took from Thrasybulus, the tyrant of Miletus. For Periander, at the beginning of his reign, was of a milder temper than his father. But after he corresponded by means of messengers with Thrasybulus, tyrant of Miletus, he became even more bloodthirsty. On one occasion, he sent a herald to ask Thrasybulus what mode of government was safest to set up in order to rule with honor. Thrasybulus led the messenger outside of the city and took him into a field of corn through which he began to walk, while he asked him again and again concerning his coming from Corinth. And as he did this, he went breaking off and throwing away all such ears of corn as overtopped the rest. In this way, he went through the whole field and destroyed all the best and richest part of the crop. Then, without a word, he sent the messenger back. So it's. So I just wanted to tell you. Um... Thrasybulus, right? The actual word Thrasybulus means um, brazen uh, action. That you take an initiative that's so brazen and harsh, just so you know. Throwing away all such ears of corn as overtopped the rest. In this way, he went through the whole field and destroyed all the best and richest part of the crop. Then, without a word, he sent the messenger back. So what did he do? I'm just showing you history of Corinth and how the revolution started. The ancient revolution started. He sent his, and he said, how do I rule with honor, like to honor the people of Corinth? Help me. So he went to a cornfield, cornfield, and just, uh, you know, went his way through, destroyed the best part of the crop. I'm just saying. So it's notable here that Periander was told through this metaphor of chopping off all the top of the wheat to kill the preeminent citizens, not the common people. 
So the most notable enemies of the tyrant were the deposed oligarchic peers. So in that sense, the corn was taking out the elite. He was saying, you want to take out all the good corn that you got, because then you keep the weak people and you can control them in a nicer way. See, people with knowledge, people that know things, can do things and have power, they can't be ruled. That was the message of the corn. So the corn must be cut is basically what he said. And it has to be the good one. You got to harvest that shit down and break it off and keep the rest. That's how you have a nice field of vegetables that you can rule over. That's the only way that you can rule honorably. All of the famous tyrants of archaic Greece were in the early to mid 7th century. We have the Pythagoreans of Sicyon, whose dynasty began in 650 and lasted for a century. The Kypsilids of Corinth, which was one of the earliest tyrant dynasties, one of the longest lasting. Yeah, so it was at 550, not 555. It's 550, where Corinth's revolution began. And that's where the coin was printed. Kypsilis overthrew the aristocracy in Corinth, a group called the Bacchiads. And he was followed by his son, Periander, and finally by Perian's, Periander's nephew, also called Kypsilis, who was then deposed. Theogenes of Megara confiscated the possessions and wealth of the aristocracy, secured a bodyguard, and made himself tyrant. He later I just want to say, this whole area, this whole area is Corinth. This is the Corinthian, you know, um, Gulf. This is where the isthmus is. You'll see it. Megara is, um, oh, by the way, the biggest oil field is right here. It stinks like farts if you go by it. And this is where Athens is, right by Megara, right? So this was on the way. So these are where um, they were coming through, this area. And you'll understand why uh, with the next, you know, walkthrough where the guy's talking about Apostle Paul, but then you'll understand why this place had those revolutions, that had that archaic revolution. Later supported the Athenian Cylon's unsuccessful attempt to make himself tyrant at Athens. At Mytilene, Pittacus, who was one of the seven sages along with Solon of Athens, actually overthrew an earlier tyrant, uh, Melancros, but then became tyrant himself. Of course, according to his archenemy, the poet um, Alcaeus, who didn't like him at all. The tyrant Polycrates seized control of the island Samos at around 535 BCE with his brothers Pantagnetus and Silosan. The Pisistratids of Athens, that is Pisistratus and his sons Hippias and Hipparchus, will come to later. Cylon of Athens is a very... Okay, so we don't need to go through that. I just wanted to show you what tyrants are and how they were and what their theories were. And as you can see, the playbook is always the same. There's no change in that. None. It's been the same. They haven't changed it at all. They've constantly had the same type of, you know, actions. So now, here is uh, a clip where uh, some gentleman uh, named Ian Paul um, and Stephen Travis uh, went to uh, the actual location where Apostle Paul was, where he wrote the letter of the Corinthians. Uh, he tells you about the letter, tells you about the history, and then you're going to see why Corinth was so important. Right, right now, there's a canal there. I don't know if he shows it in the video. Uh, that's where I've bungee jumped from, by the way. <laughs> Um, the history here is, is pretty big because this was where true, um, a true Republic was being born when they overthrew 
the tyrant. And remember, it was after the overthrow of the tyrant, right? Because tyrants don't know they're tyrants. They think they're just leaders. Where he reached out to Thrasybulus and said, how do I rule people, you know, in a good way? And he's like, yeah, snip them out. You need to take all the people that can cause commotion and, and, and take them out. That's basically how it is. So this is quite interesting. I mean, and he's got some good footage too. What would you look for in your ideal location if you were going to found a city? Well, first of all, you might look for somewhere to defend. And the immense mountain behind me forms the Acrocorinth, the upper part of the city. Secondly, you'd need water. And the site of Corinth here has two big springs, the Pyrene Spring over here, and on the other side, the Glauca Spring. Thirdly, you'd be looking for food, and the beautiful fertile valley stretches away to the coast. And in fact, the name Corinth comes from currants that were made from grapes grown there. If a city was really going to flourish, you need to have it of strategic importance. And the location of Corinth here controls trade routes north and south over the isthmus, but also of the two ports, the Lekeon port in the west and Kenkrea on the east. In fact, the road here is called the Lekeon Way, and this heads from the center, from the Forum, right down directly to the coast and to the port. That made Corinth in Paul's day an immensely bustling, cosmopolitan and strategic city to be in. I'm standing here at the top of the Lekeon Way, and the steps lead up into the Forum, the Roman marketplace. And the steps say, thus far and no farther. You bring your horse and your cart here, you unload them, and everything else goes up by hand. But this road tells us a bit about why Corinth was so important. If you wanted to sail round from Rome to the east, then you had to either sail all the way around the Peloponnese and risk the storms there, or you came across to the Corinthian Isthmus. So you unload your boat at Lecheon in the west, your goods are transported, and your boat hauled across the Isthmus, and you re-embark at Kenkre in the east. That shows that Corinth would have been a very cosmopolitan place with sailors, Okay, just so you guys understand this, right? They would park their boat on one side of the isthmus. There was no canal at that point. This is a man-made canal right here, and it and it looks bigger than it is. It's not that big. It takes like five like five minutes to get through with a little boat. If it's a big boat, you need the tugboat, and it could take like you know fifteen twenty minutes. Uh, it, it does look a lot bigger than it is, but um, uh, here's where you would unload your goods. And your boat and your goods would travel around that road that he was talking about to come out to the other side of the port where they would put your boat back in the water and all your goods. That's pretty, that's pretty insane. Thinking, you know, they didn't have the tech we have now. I mean, even now, you'd be like, damn, that's going to cost you, right? With traders, with all the people associated with all that kind of business. It also meant it was a natural place to stop as you were traveling from Rome. And so it was that when the Jews were expelled from Rome by Claudius, many of them ended up here in Corinth. Now, when Paul came, his trade was a tent maker, and the city was teeming with all these refugees. So before Paul served his people by preaching the gospel, he served his people by making tents for them. We've come up the stairs now from the Lechian Way into the Forum, the Roman marketplace. Romans, when they refounded the city 100 years after destroying it, actually turned the city back to front. Uh, the original marketplace was on the north side of the Temple of Apollo. This was a running track, and the Romans re-established this as the market on the south side. Here would be the center of the life of the city. People would come here to shop, to meet, to discuss, to make decisions. We see on each side colonnaded areas for shops 
and from eating areas. We see civic buildings just over at the back. We see the Buluterion, the council chamber where decisions were made. This is the place where people would come to talk about everything they could. And we use the phrases today. We talk about a discussion forum where people can meet and can exchange ideas. This area behind me doesn't look very impressive. In fact, not many people can visit here. But in Paul's day, this would have been a very impressive building. You can perhaps judge just by looking at the size of the stones here. They're an awful lot bigger than many of the stones in the buildings around. This in the first century would have been the Julian Basilica. It was a civic building, but it was full of statues of the emperor's family. It may well have been here, rather than over at the Bema, that Gallio heard Paul's case. And in fact, as we know from Acts, Gallio simply heard the dispute and said to Paul and to those who are accusing him, this is a religious matter, it's got nothing to do with me. You go and sort it out yourself. Quite near the center of the forum is this base or plinth on which a statue would have been. And we can actually see an inscription around it here. We can just make out Augusto Augustales. The Augustales were the people who were the guardians of the imperial cult in the city. And in fact, we might think of that as simply a religious thing, but this also is tied into the city's loyalty to the emperor. So anyone who is threatening patterns of worship was also threatening the political and the economic status of Corinth as a Roman colony. Judging from the size of the plinth, the statue must have been two or three meters high, and if made of bronze, would have been very impressive indeed. Here in the center of the forum, we find another colonnade of shops or stoa. And here there's evidence there were jewelers and bankers. In the middle of it, there's this platform that protrudes. This is called the Bema. It was the platform where public announcements were made, where magistrates sat to make decisions. And many think this is the place that Paul stood before Gallio in 51. Gallio is an important figure in dating the chronology of Paul's life. We know from inscriptional evidence exactly when Gallio was proconsul. And so we can be fairly sure of when it was that Paul stood before Gallio. It may not have been in front of this Bema, it may in fact have been at the other end of the forum in the Julian Basilica, but it gives us a fix on Paul's life and his ministry and his time in Corinth. I'm now sitting in the South Stoa. That's on the far side of the forum from the Temple of Apollo. As you can see from the reconstruction of the pillars here, this would have been a very important part of the city. The columns would have supported a roof. This would have provided a shaded area protecting people from the heat of the day. This is a place where people could relax and where they could meet and associate together. Excavations have unearthed this series of wells along the Stoa. And so that's led to speculation that perhaps the shops here were actually taverns or maybe exclusive clubs. If you gave access to the water supply from the Pyrene Spring in a city like Corinth, it was vital that that was protected. The last thing you wanted was for your water supply to be polluted. Okay, and this goes back to a saying that I say sometimes, which is, you know, when someone's like mean to me, I'm like, what, did I piss in the well? Because that was a saying that they have in Corinth that my granddad would always tell me, you know, he's, you know, as, you know, nobody likes you because you peed in the well. And so it contaminated the water. I just wanted to see there's always a history behind all, you know, sayings and weird things, you know, that that uh, cultures and, and language have. On the north side of the forum, tucked underneath the Temple of Apollo, we find the North Stoa, a series of shops uh, and a colonnaded arch. On the right-hand end of this, one of the shops still has its arch intact. This might have been the kind of place that Paul found Priscilla and Aquila and joined them in tent making. Very often people would live upstairs, although we haven't found any first century evidence of a two-story shop yet. 
There were plenty of gods you could choose to worship here in Corinth, but there was one more thing which was an object of worship, money and the prestige that money could buy. Just behind me here, next to the Fountain of Poseidon, is a monument erected by a particular Babius Philinus, and the inscription on it is very revealing. Gnaeus Babius Philinus, ideal and pontifex, had this monument erected at his own expense, and he approved it in his official capacity as duovere. Now, I want you to pay attention, because now you're going to understand the significance of that city. And because of the way they would transport things across a few miles of land, uh, obviously it was longer. The isthmus, I mean, the way he showed it on the map, it went through the more smaller portion of it um, where they've actually dug it out. It was a man-made canal in 1888, if I remember off the top of my head. Uh, you know, without the tools of today, they dug a canal. Um, but they had refugees. They accepted people of all colors and creeds, and they were against slavery too, And when slavery was big. Listen. Oops. Oh no, what did I do? Let's go back to where he's reading. Stupid fingers. Here we go. He read it. There we go. In his official capacity as duovere. Fabius is a former slave. The name Philinus means darling. It's a name which slave owners would have given to a slave. And what's also very revealing is that in his name, he makes no reference to his family background. Here is a freed slave who has made good. He's made money and he's used it to buy influence and power within the city. And he's not afraid to let people know who he is. Corinth was a place where you could make a name for yourself, sometimes quite literally. And there's this spirit of individualism and competitiveness that Paul is tackling at the beginning of his letter to the church in Corinth. Those who say, I'm for Paul, I'm for Peter. Paul says to them, actually, it's who we are as part of the body of Christ that is much more important than our own name or the names of those around us. Alongside all the big temples here in Corinth, there were smaller temples and monuments as well. Next to the monument erected by Babus here, there was a spring dedicated to Poseidon or Neptune, as he's known in Latin. And in fact, Babius erected a statue here dedicated to Neptune. Around here, there are also temples to Apollo uh, and to Tyche, the goddess of fortune, to Venus or Aphrodite. It's no wonder that Paul writes to the Christians in Corinth. Even if there are many so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, yet for us, he says, drawing on the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Here at the west end of the Forum is another reminder of Roman imperial power. The building behind me, imaginatively known as Temple E, was probably dedicated to Octavia, Augustus's sister. It wouldn't have looked like this with these short pillars. It would actually have had six enormously high pillars built on this huge base and would have been impressive in within the whole city. In fact, being built on the highest point of the central part of the city, it would have matched the Temple of Apollo over to the north. The significance of this is twofold. In the first place, we have Apollo and the gods to the north, and we have the imperial family here to the west. It's very clear that it's the imperial family and imperial power which is doing the work for the, of the gods for the people of Corinth. In the second place, this arrangement is very similar to the arrangement in Rome. As a Roman colony, this whole 
physical layout would have reminded people here of the mother city. In these two ways, it's very clear who's in charge here. One of the most interesting things in the museum at Corinth is this selection of grave markers. Not much is said about them here. They date from the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries, but a couple of things are really interesting about them. The first is that all of them have a little cross in front of them, which shows us that the Christian community here was very well established. These are people who are Christians and who are dying in the hope of Christ. But the other thing that's fascinating is it describes all the different jobs they do. So we have a goat herder, we have a charioteer, we have a stucco renderer, we have someone who fished with fish traps, in other words, an eel fisherman. And alongside that, we've also got descriptions of various church officials, deacons, deaconesses, and administrators of the church here in Corinth. This is one of my favorite spots in Corinth because this is a carving illustrating uh, this chap here is a Kubernetes. He's a steersman. He's the one who directs where the boat is going. He's not the one who provides the motive power, as it were. Paul mentions this Kubernetes, this steering or this leadership, in Romans 12.8 in his list of gifts. Earlier translations of Romans 12.8 call this the gift of administration. I think it's probably a spiritual gift not many people wanted. But in fact, going back to the origin of the metaphor, this is more rightly translated as leadership. And Paul is urging those with this gift of leadership to lead, to govern, to steer diligently. Okay, this is nice. One of the questions that rumbles on about the church in Corinth, Paul's relationship with the church and the Corinthian correspondence is, what were the social classes involved in those early Christian congregations? We know quite a lot about the Roman Empire as a whole. We know about the number of rich, number of poor, the relationship between them. But the question is, did the message that Paul brought to Corinth appeal equally to the different social classes? In the 1930s, this inscription I'm standing by was unearthed, and it's very intriguing because of the name that it contains. It says this, Erastus, for his idealship, laid this pavement at his own expense. And the question that has intrigued scholars ever since is, is this Erastus mentioned here the same as the Erastus who is mentioned in the New Testament? Luke mentions him in Acts 19 as a person that Paul has sent with Timothy to Macedonia. Paul himself names him in Romans 16 as the person in charge of the city works. And he mentions him again in 2 Timothy in his last letter where he talks about the fact that Erastus has stayed in Corinth. There's lots of debates about the slab itself, what date it comes from, whether the different names used for Erastus can fit together. But we certainly know from other parts of the New Testament and from other evidence that there were certainly wealthy and influential people in the early Christian movement, as well as the poor and the dispossessed to whom it appealed. So I wanted to take you on that so you can understand the significance of uh, corn and harvesting corn, the history of it, and more so the history of certain movements, ancient movements. There's a... Um, here is um, another site that I am showing you, uh, where I am showing you this coin with the copa. And it shows um, when they had started all these movements, when they had uh, moved it along the copa, uh, how it was done. Uh, it is quite important because that was how uh, they unified the Copa Corinth was 
identified as the uh, center of light. And they would always uh, claim that um, it was people that came from light. And that is how they would explain things. And I've mentioned before that the Q tome of the Bible, which is that predates uh, the actual writings of it, <clears throat> was in Corinth. And hence why they used it, because the kappa was the symbol in front of writings, ancient writings that nobody can um, identify. So I'm going to take you on a little journey again uh, where someone takes the footsteps of uh, Apostle Paul. Um, and she uh, went there in 2014. So I thought we can watch this together. It's six minutes and they're speaking. If there's not speaking part, for those of you on the podcast, I like to talk, so I'll narrate. Was occupied as early as 6,500 BC and by the year 4,000 BC had grown to a population of 90,000. Corinth was both blessed and cursed geographically with ports on the Adriatic Sea linking it to Europe and Rome and ports on the Aegean Sea linking it to Asia Minor. Unfortunately, its hostile neighbors, Sparta and Athens, coveted the land, and so did other powerful enemies who needed to cross through Corinth on the way to their conquests. The Corinth Canal was engineered and built by Bulgarians from 1881 to... Okay, wait. For those of you watching, you see that bridge? Hold on, let me get to the bridge thing. Um, hold on. The Corinth Canal was engineered and built by Bulgarians. That bridge, that's where I bungeed from. Isn't that so cool? From 1881 to 1893. It connects the Adriatic and Aegean seas and runs for three and a half miles, which replaces what would otherwise be a seven-day sail around the Isthmus of Corinth. It is only for recreational... Oh, there's Dimitri's company thing. Yeah. Corinth Museum has artifacts dating back to the 6th century BC. The sarcophagus was found and is from the 570 BC era. Paul made three visits to Corinth and wrote them two letters. His first visit was with Timothy and Silas. And Paul worked here for 18 months as a leather worker starting in 50 AD. Okay, so can you hear that? He said he was a leather worker in 50 AD, and it was like, no, he was actually making tents that were made of leather. You see how information is parsed? Because back in the day, they used to make tents out of leather. So you see how they say leather worker, but the other one was like, oh, it's tents? Because they're both correct, but it was leather working to make tents which is more correct. Uh, so this is how disinformation happens. And people know half the story or a little bit. I mean, that's how you tell the best lies. You only give a little bit of truth. Typical of ancient cities, Corinth was located at the base of a mountain, which could serve as a defensive stronghold in times of war. Acro-Corinth, is at the top of this mountain, a 
difficult two-hour walk to get to the archaeological site. We were told that little from antiquity remains to be seen at the summit. The Odeon held 3,000 spectators and was built by the Romans toward the end of the first century AD. Most prominent structure is the Temple of Apollo, which overlooks the Forum. Seven columns remain, about 24 feet high and six feet in diameter. There had been 38 of these Doric columns. You can spot the ocean in the background. Um, and it seems that uh, this is probably the road where Rassus paved. It's a really expensive work if you think that after 2,000 years it still has less potholes than the road in front of This is the main spring of the city. You can still feel the water. Until the 1960s, people would come here and take it from there. Uh, this is the arches were added by the Romans. They made the whole thing monumental with a nice pool in the middle. If I had to bet, I would say that Paul, if Paul spent time in the center, he would have visited this place quite a few times. It was a water hole, is where all the animals go, right? So here you're going to find the administration, the, the priesthood, the merchants, the, the, the people from the residential areas, all the foreigners coming and going from or to the port. The bima was by the marketplace or forum, an elaborate ceremonial raised rostrum where Roman officials would address the public. So just so you know, vima means like step. So it's like your step up to speak. That's basically where that word comes from. Those who were being brought before the tribunal would be on the ground where we are standing. However, this little altar, which by the way, is nothing compared to the altar of the temple, which is like a huge stone bench, also has a hole on this side which you can put an iron ring, which eventually in time comes with a man like this and having raised the thing uh, We may imagine that Paul probably stood in such a place quite a few times in his life being accused, and probably some of the punishments he received could have happened with something like this. And so you would get your lashings there. You know, they would be like, oh, you stole the orange. They tie you up there and they give you lashings. Corinth, it did not happen, but I'm taking the opportunity to talk about the other places where it happened. And just so you know, the courts at that time were very public because the people needed to see the crimes against the people or whatever crimes the tribunals would claim there were. They would make sure that there was public lashings because that's necessary for the people to feel like they've been vindicated. I don't know if Paul was actually put on that. I've never heard of that, but I guess he has. Uh, beaten 40 minus 1 three times, left for dead so many times, stoned, shipwrecked, etc, etc, etc. For example, think of Philippi. Uh, probably the punishment would have been the 40 minus 1, right there. I mean, 40 minus 1, why? Because the Romans are lenient. I'm going to spear the last one. Corinthian Forum, or Marketplace, was one of the largest in the ancient world about 600 feet by 300 feet. This is the view of it from atop the bima, and you see the Temple of Apollo in the background. Shops lined the entrance road heading to the bima and the forum. 
Do you know what the Egyptians used to call the Corinthian Forum? When they used to park their ships to then go through to the other side of Europe, they'd, you know, obviously get them down that road. The Egyptians called it Chen, Chen Chen. Chen was what the Corinthian Forum was called. Meat market because of a description inside and also its proximity to the Temple of Apollo. That means that spring is near. Hmm. Pardon? Is that means that spring is near. Spring. The toilet? Yeah. And there was one sponge everybody used. Leave it the way you found it. So they had toilet systems. So they had toilet systems, as he said, as well. And apparently. They say that there was one sponge and everyone would use it and they'd leave it the way it is. Yeah, okay, I don't know if I believe that. If they had a sewage system, I'd say, mm. So there was, you know, this guy that I always watch, which does these mini series on, uh, you know, um, documentaries like wars and stuff like that. Well, this ancient history guy did a mini one on Corinth. And I want you guys, I don't know, I haven't watched all of it to see, but he talks about the war. Now remember, that is where the revolution was born um, the first time. And then it came again after Apostle Paul's death. And then again, and then again, and then again. And it's always there. Why? Because it was the center of trade and it would allow access to Africa in the east with boats. That's the only reason. Geography plays a key in how uh, people and populations respond. You want water, you want land, right? This is how they would create civilizations. So this was actually the center of many revolutions because it was always the one that had people always passing. And it was always one of freedom. So if slaves would be coming on a ship, they would have the ability to stay there. And like uh, Phileas, um, that he would be free and be able to make money. So they were always about those revolutionary ideas that people were um, able to fight for their freedom. They didn't say, oh, you're a slave, you're free. The slave would have to ask for it. And this is why I always say freedom isn't, isn't an innate quality. Yes, you're born as a free being, but are you really? I mean, we're born with debt right now, right? We're under tyranny, uh, regardless of how we want to say it. We're not self-governing at all. So in essence, yes, your soul, your mind is completely free, but you're, you're bound. And they believed in the idea that if you want to be free, you have to say it. This is why you could reinvent your name and be free. You can take your freedom. People that are free are those that are willing to fight for it. Not everybody. Because it comes with huge responsibility, okay? Huge responsibility to be free. Oops, here we go. Everybody knows about the great city-states of Athens and Sparta and how they dominated the ancient Greek world. However, at the very epicenter of the Greek world, indeed in the very centre of the ancient Greek world, was the city-state of Corinth. Now, Corinth had a very long history and was often at the center of major events in the ancient Greek world. 
So what is the history of Corinth and how did it become such an important city? Welcome to the history of the city of Corinth. Now, the earliest known inhabitation of the Corinthian area was in the Neolithic times, specifically in 5000 BC, when the earliest Neolithic finds were found in the Corinthian area. By 750 BC, the Brachidae had taken power in the town of Corinth. Now, the Brachidae were a Doric clan that brought Corinth out of the backwater of ancient Greece. Now, the city before this had really not been an important site. Indeed, it had been kind of overshadowed by Argos, Sparta and Athens. Now, Corinth began to assert itself overseas, specifically by founding colonies. In 733 BC, Corinth founded Syracuse, which would go on to be one of the most important Greek cities in the ancient world, dominating mainland Sicily. In the same year, Corinth also founded the city of Corsera. Now, Corinth was able to expand their sphere of influence over the Mediterranean quickly because in 700 BC, Corinth adapted the trireme from the Phoenicians. Indeed, this was only a small portion of what the Greeks borrowed from the Phoenicians, as they also borrowed their alphabet, enabling Greece to come out of their Dark Ages and thus begin the classical age of ancient Greece. Now, I want to tell you something. First, it was Mesopotamia, and then it became Corinth. And now it's the United States. What is the commonality here? The commonality is, as populations were exploding, and civilizations were manifesting, right, after all these biblical changes that were happening, the epicenter of love, of prosperity of, um, I would say, cultivation of humans shifted. Now, Mesopotamia, access, water, this, that. The Greeks were big naval people. Corinth, very in the center of everything, but nobody really wants to talk about it because it was the belly button of that time. You would be able to access from there you know, the regions of, you know, because nobody was really trading with North America or South America at the time. So it was Europe, Asia, and Africa, right? So it was a, a key point of where the Europeans would be able to send their stuff and where the Africans and Asians would be able to go through to send their stuff. Now look at the United States geographically. We've got the Atlantic on the east, the Pacific on the west. We've got Canada to the north, and we've got, you, you know, the South, access to South America, it's central. We are now the Corinth. Do you see what I'm trying to say? We are now the Phoenicians. This is how man moves. I want you to understand this. This is why history repeats itself. The Phoenicians, at the time of how many humans habited, you know, were inhabitants of this earth, they created, you know, uh, you know, an empire from there. And then it became Corinth as the epicenter. Why? Not because they were more special, but because it made more sense. Like they said, are they going to go where the French or the um, Bohemians, uh, you know, the, the, the Romans, the Spaniards, were they going to go around the Peloponnese to go to Asia? 
or were they going to go through that little strait of three miles dragging their boat across land to save weeks of travel and possibility of storms of the Mediterranean South. So that, that city, that geographical location gave pure access to everything. No matter how much the Romans wanted it, you don't have a canal that connects all of the continents. Now I want you to stand on the moon and look at the United States. It's the same thing. We can access Europe and Africa from the East and we can access Asia in Australia and Africa on that end from the West. You see how that goes? And we can access the North and the South. It makes more sense. This is why we are the epicenter of civilizations in general right now. That's what makes us special. And this is why the United States was so important. And as you can see, if you look at it with an eye of, Oh, back then they were a little bit more dumbed down per se. You know, they didn't have electricity because we said so. And they didn't have all these things. But, you know, now you're seeing they had toilets, running water, states, communities. But, you know, whatever. Let's just pretend they were primitive. This is the same thing on a more archaic scale. We're right where they were then. That's the point. You know, obviously, you know, this is where my bloodline derives from. But, you know, it means nothing because before them, it was the Phoenicians. And it's only happenstance, happen chance due to geography, the belly button of the earth for trade, commerce, and innovation. You need to have access, right? Access. Access and um, a melting pot of people coming and going provokes, propels, and pushes for innovation because 10 people in one room tackling one problem that look the same, think the same, dress the same, are going to struggle to find one solution. 10 people that all speak different, walk different, dress different, think different, pray different, they're going to come up with a million solutions to the same problem. So pay attention to this history and think about it applied now because everything is applied now, only we don't drag ships across from it but we do have the United States of America that gives access to every other physical body on this planet. Corinth was able to use the trireme to assert itself as a naval power in ancient Greece. However, Corinthian naval dominance would almost immediately come under threat as their own colony, Corsica, defeated them in a naval battle. Indeed, only a few years after this, the Brachidae were expelled from the city and were replaced by a series of tyrants. These tyrants weren't tyrants as we know it. Indeed, many Greek tyrants needed the support of the people to maintain their power. And as a result, often treated the people quite luxuriously. However, they still obtained power through undemocratic means. So these tyrants would be in power from 657 BC to 585 BC. Now what's noteworthy is during this time, the famous black figure pottery was invented in Corinth. So this pottery grew to be extremely popular in Corinth and eventually grew to be extremely popular in mainland Greece. 
The popularity of this pottery is evidenced by the fact that this is the main known form of art from the ancient Greek world, besides their statues. However, the city of Corinth's contribution to ancient Greek culture didn't just end with pottery. Indeed, the most famous helmet of ancient Greece, the Corinthian helmet, funnily enough, comes from Corinth, in case you couldn't tell from its name, and not from the city of Sparta, as many people believe, the Spartan. Do you know what the helmet actually translate to? Punisher. In fact, wore very simple helmets, which were little more than metal bowls placed on their head. So the Corinthian helmet for a time would be one of the more popular helmet designs in ancient Greece. Putting aside the Corinthians' impact on how we view ancient Greece, the tyrants who were ruling Corinth at the time were eventually kicked out in 585 BC and were replaced by a oligarchy of 80. A few years later, the Peloponnesian League was established led by Sparta. The Peloponnese was the area in which both Corinth and Sparta controlled in ancient Greece. Now, as Sparta was the head of the Peloponnesian League, it brought its... It's interesting this guy did his homework, because you know what? Um, you see the symbol of Corinth is also the owl. Just thought I'd point that out too. Allies into a war with Athens, who they believed threatened Greek freedom due to the fact that they were beginning to form their own empire. So Corinth joined Sparta in the war against Athens. Recognizing that they had a potential ally in Athens, Corsera allied with the Athenians and went to war with their mother city once again. So Corinth assembled their navy and in another naval battle, Corsera defeated the Corinthians and as a result, the Athenians managed to campaign in the Corinthian Gulf to great success. Not much else really happened between the Corinthians and the Athenians. However, the two sides continued to effectively be at war, especially seeing they both wanted naval dominance in the Greek world. So in the time between 421 and 416 BC, Athens and Corinth were essentially in what was the ancient equivalent of a Cold War, with both sides neither directly attacking the other one, but at the same time not signing any sort of peace treaty and acting friendly towards them. However, the status quo that was being established with Sparta as the dominant land power and Athens as the dominant naval power would not be certain, as in a few years' time, the entire Greek world, as they knew it, would be turned on its head, with Corinth playing a pivotal role in the many centuries to come. By the end of the Peloponnesian War, the city of Corinth had established itself as both a naval power and as a dominant city in mainland Greece. However, things were beginning to change in the Greek world, and the previous warring years would pale in comparison to the bloodshed that was about to be spilt. So, following the long and bloody Peloponnesian War, Sparta had asserted itself as the main land power on ancient Greek soil. Now, this began to present a whole series of problems as the ancient Greeks, 
like their freedom, and they like to make a big fuss of their freedom. So, in 395 BC, the Thebans and the Athenians, as well as the Argives, decided to rise up against Spartan hegemony in ancient Greece. Joining them, surprisingly, was Sparta's long-term ally and member of the Peloponnesian League, the city of Corinth. Now, these allies were backed by an unlikely source of income, specifically the Persian Empire. Now, a few decades prior, the Persians had attempted to invade mainland Greece and had been soundly defeated by both the Athenians and Spartans at multiple engagements, such as the Battle of Marathon between the Athenians and the Persians, and Thermopylae and Plataea between the Spartans and Persians. So now, greatly humbled by the fact that they had been defeated by such a small collection of city-states, the Persian kings now meddled in Greek affairs. Huh. So the Persian Empire was massive, if you know. They had uh, a lot of Africa, uh, the Middle East, and Asia. So they tried to invade, and they, they lost. So what did they do? They election meddled. So what did they do? The Spartans were the most ruthless. 300 of them took them out clean. With everything they came, they, they annihilated them. They were warriors. So what they did was they got the rest of the Greeks to fight against the Spartans. You take out the Spartans, we win. <laughs> Look, the crown putting its own people against each other. For a righteous cause, of course, to not have slaves. Uh, see how they are using the same weapons now? Hoping to keep them in check by turning them against each other. As such, the Persians supplied the Allies with a large quantity of gold, which they used to fund their war efforts. Now, to begin with, the war began quite well for the Allies as they had this unlimited resource of money from the Persians. So, the Spartans look at this and decide the best way to defeat this alliance would be to get the Persians to turn sides. And eventually, in 386 BC, Sparta succeeds and uses the funds received from Persia to fund their own war effort. This eventually results in Sparta winning the war. This war would become known as the Corinthian War and would see Sparta victorious. However, the Spartan power was so diminished that they were eventually ousted by the Thebans for the hegemonic title of leader of the Greek city-states. So, as you can see, the Greeks again immediately began to turn on each other, each vying for control over the Greek world. Now, nothing quite unites the Greeks like a foreign invader, and this foreign invader would be Philip of Macedon. Now, Philip viewed himself as a Greek. He had, after all, grew up in the city of Thebes as a political hostage. So when Macedon was being viewed as a backwater and barbarous tribe by the Greeks, it made Philip very angry because he thought his people were more than equal to the Greeks. So after a period of Greekifying the Macedonian kingdom, as well as carrying out various military reforms. Hmm. 
So someone who was a Greek was not being treated like a Greek because he wasn't allowed to enter politics, right? He wasn't allowed to enter politics because his people, even though were about freedom and everything, right? He was outed because he was different. How was he different? He didn't play their games. Philip eventually invaded classical Greece. And this united the cities of Thebes, Athens and Corinth to essentially repel the invasion. This didn't exactly go to plan as Philip and his son, Alexander, defeated both Corinth, Thebes and Athens at the Battle of Chironia, thus securing Macedonian hegemony over the Greek world. So what Philip does after this is he establishes a league of Greek city-states. Now this league was stationed in the city of Corinth and became known as the League of Corinth. So the purpose of this league was to unite Greece against a common enemy, which was the Persian Empire, as the Greeks had still not forgotten how the Persians had invaded mainland Greece all those decades earlier. Now, Philip had already sent a small army into Asia Minor to secure a beachhead for the Greek Macedonian army that was to follow. However, he would be assassinated and his young son Alexander would take up the throne. And he eventually led the Greeks and Macedonians to basically the end of their known world. He took them as far as India. So during this time, Alexander left a region to essentially keep the Greeks in check. This region was called Antipa. Now, Antipa would later play a very pivotal role when Alexander died. He eventually managed to become regent of the entire Macedonian Empire, only to die himself afterwards. Now, Antipa had a son. This son was called Cassander. Cassander, in lack of better words, can be described as a right nasty piece of work and he eventually became the governor of his father's former power base of Macedon and Greece. During this time, Cassander managed to murder the entirety of Alexander's family, which eventually allowed him to assume the kingship. During his kingship, he continued to murder and plot his way to various other schemes, and he somehow died of natural causes. How he wasn't assassinated is honestly beyond belief. So following his death, Greece and Macedon came under the rule of the Antigonids. And Corinth would become an essential city under Antigonid rule, being the main Antigonid power base in the classical Greek world. However, the crazy times of ancient Greece were not over yet. If anything, they were about to become even crazier. And once again, at the heart of all this madness would be the city of Corinth, which would play a vital role in the history to come. Mm, right? Following Macedonian victory over the classical Greek city-states at the Battle of Chironia, Corinth would essentially become the epicenter of Macedonian influence in the classical Greek world. Indeed, after Alexander the Great's death, Corinth remained a very important city to the Macedonians as it was their main power base in Greece. 
However, over the following years, this wouldn't always be the case, with the city of Corinth changing hands and playing a very important geopolitical role in the decades to come. So following the Antigonids' assertion of dominance in mainland Macedonia and Greece, Corinth remained the epicenter of Macedonian influence. However, in 243 BC, there was finally an attempt by the classical Greeks to unify themselves into one nation. This was called the Achaean League. Now, the Achaean League was made up of Greek city-states who shared a common ancestry, as well as history. This meant a majority of the Greek classical world. So, in 243 BC, the Achaean League took Corinth for themselves, claiming that it was an important historical and cultural centre of their history. This, to no one's surprise, angered the Antigonids and resulted in many on-and-off wars between the Achaean League and the Macedonians. Now, Corinth remained in the hands of the Achaean League until the Achaeans had to deal with the city of Sparta. So I want you to understand, you hear that, right? So there were a lot of states, they were independent, right? And they decided, let's form a more perfect union. You, are you getting this? And there were spats. It's kind of like us. Remember when George Washington was like, yo, you know, maybe we should hook up and create a United States. Let's bind these colonies. What happened with every government? Oh, I want to. Oh, I want to. Oh, I want to. Oh, I want to. I want to be in charge. I want to be the same, same stuff. Different day. The Spartans had never really been conquered by the Macedonians and as a result still maintained some of that arrogant Spartan pride that they had always had. So the Achaeans and Macedonians essentially joined together to deal with the Spartans and teach them a lesson. Now, as a sign of gratitude for this help, the Achaeans give Corinth back to Macedon. However, as with all things Greek, the Achaeans and the Macedonians are once again butting heads in 200 BC. This is mainly because the Antigone Macedonian king Philip V has began to assert his dominance over the Greek world a little bit too harshly for the Achaeans' liking. So, as a result, the Achaeans look over the Mediterranean. Do you see the symbol? Yeah. Towards the city of Rome. Now, Rome had just established itself as the main power in the Mediterranean as they had just defeated both Carthage, Syracuse and Macedon as Macedon had sided with Carthage during the Second Punic War. Now, what do we get from this? Because now I want to hop over to some more hidden teachings, right, that came out of Corinth. What do we get from this? What we get is that... Um, it's always a battle of one controlling others. It's always a handoff to someone that has more power. It's always from one tyrant to another, from one tyrant to another. And yet what we've missed is those real teachings that have been every single time they revamp our Bible, they come out, they pull them out, they pull them out. And you have to wonder why. Because in essence, and that was what the core 
of what Corinth was trying to do and what everyone was battling for. And then, you know, being human, you get drunk on power. Right? You get drunk on power. Teachings are lost. Here's teachings that have been lost. It's quite fascinating. In 1945, some workers in Egypt accidentally dug into an early Christian tomb. Inside, they found a large jar containing 13 leather-bound manuscripts, which were composed of 48 separate works. Practically all of these works are Gnostic, meaning they teach salvation through mystical knowledge. And one of these manuscripts contains the Gospel of Thomas. In Gnosticism, people are believed to be souls in material bodies. Only through true knowledge can they ascend. And according to this religion, Jesus is the Redeemer who came to communicate that knowledge and liberate man. He communicated this knowledge to selected disciples, one of them being Thomas. In almost all spiritual paths or traditions that are followed, eventually that which is discovered leads to this same ascension. And if these teachings have been placed in the modern Bible, the message may possibly have been clearer and more focused on the power that is held within each person. The Gospel according to Thomas doesn't tell a story. It's a compilation of approximately 114 sayings attributed to Jesus. The opening words of the document read, These are the secret words which Jesus, the Living One, spoke, and Didymus Judas Thomas wrote down. And he said, Whosoever finds the interpretation of these sayings shall never taste death. Let not him who seeks desist until he finds. When he finds, he will be troubled. When he is troubled, he will marvel, and he will reign over the universe. The sayings themselves are not the secret. The secret lies in their interpretation. When you find the true answers, it will trouble you because it goes against most of what you've been taught. And when the truth of it sets in, it will marvel you. And then you will know your power, that you have supreme reign over your life and everything in it, that you truly can experience heaven on earth. The Gospel of Thomas has been eliminated from the Bible, and there are many explanations as to the reasoning. Some religious leaders express that if you read it and compare it to what you see in the New Testament, it's a very different kind of book, presenting a quite different Jesus. They claim that these particular teachings about Jesus mesh with certain philosophical principles that only grew in popularity, but that they aren't necessary to the work of the Bible. How many have heard of the lost gospel of Thomas? The lost gospel of Thomas. Some of you have heard of that text. Very, very powerful text. The lost gospel of Thomas is powerful because it is believed to be the actual words of Jesus as he was teaching those around him how to use the power of human emotion in his life. And if the indigenous... So I wanted to say something. So the gospel of Thomas is in the Old Testament of the Orthodox um, faith, Old, Old Testament, because they keep renewing them. This version, that version, that version, Old Testament, this. Remember, man has decided to change things. And it was written in a language that is no longer spoken. 
And therefore, it it's all about who can interpret. Kind of like I did that segment. You know, we should go through it. I've seen these scrolls. And every single time I read them, and every single time I attempted to translate them, my eyes would be different. Therefore, I would be interpreting them different. So anything you translate, this is why uh, AI translations don't work. And this is why they're collecting our voice data, our typing data, our messages, because they want to perfect translations. You can't. Because it is the experience and the eyes that you see things through on how you develop meaning. Indigenous people know it. And if the ancient people know it, why don't we know it? What happened to our knowledge? Well, this is a very good question. And the answer is this. In our Western tradition, and I'm, when I say Western, I'm assuming that we are of the Judeo-Christian tradition, is what I'm, I'm talking about here. There was a time when this field and the language of emotion was part of our tradition. It was in our texts. Until the fourth century, the year 325 AD. In the year 325, something happened. Our texts were edited and we lost tremendous amounts of information. The Emperor Constantine in the early Christian church with the early Christian Bible had to make decisions. What Now I've talked about the Emperor Constantine and that's when the discussion happened with the Catholic church where they wanted a Pope. They were like, this is, we need to take this out. We need to be able to control people. And then the Orthodox, the, the historical Christian church, the Orthodox church said, nah, man, we're not making a Pope. No one's holier than humans. You know, you're just a mere human as well. You are a sinner too. We can't make you holy. But we need to be able to control the people off with their head, right? Weaponize religion. And even though the Orthodox Church didn't create someone holy, they edited the text because they were like, you know, they're kind of right because we can't have all this, you know, freedom running around because then we can't have people abide by God's rule. And again, this is where religious leaders get drunk on power. Obviously, you know, Catholicism when it was created, right, um, with the Pope at the epicenter, right, um, it took it on another level. The Orthodox, the historical Christian, also took a bit of sip of power, but they, did, they just didn't create a figure. They edited information. Remember, those that are in power control the pen. They write history, and they tell you what you are allowed to hear, see, and speak of. What information do we include? What information do we exclude? And what we know now is that f at least, at least 45 books were either completely taken away or tremendously edited into what we call today our Western biblical tradition. And when those edits were made, we lost the information that tells us everything is connected. We lost the information that tells us the language that speaks to this field. We know the information was lost 
because we are now recovering the information in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Nag Hammadi Library, in the Coptic texts. This is how we know this information was lost. When we find writings belonging to Jesus that are not recorded in our primary sources, but are consistent with the ones that are, we are inclined to believe that they do indeed come from him. However, when the sayings seem to be a bit inconsistent with other teachings, we are told they have been edited out due to validity, rather than the fact that they are the sacred truth intended to be passed into the hands of all people, but that have only been reserved for a few. Any spotlight on the belief that each person is filled with the same higher power as Jesus, rather than it being an outside force to be feared, would have changed everything we know about life and our entire history. Because we are each different does not make us separate. We are all a part of the same one consciousness, simply taking different forms. Here are some of the sayings of Jesus from the Gospel according to Thomas and their possible interpretations. Verse number three. If those who lead you say to you, see, the kingdom is in the sky, then the birds of the sky will precede you. If they say to you, it is in the sea, then the fish will precede you. Rather, the kingdom is inside of you, and it is outside of you. When you come to know yourselves, then you will become known, and you will realize that it is you who are the sons of the living Father. But if you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty. This teaching refers to the consequences of believing that power is outside of the individual. If you believe that this ruling power belongs to someone or something else, then that thing will hold dominion over your life. However, when the realization is made of who we each truly are, the one consciousness that moves through everything and that all power comes from within, we can live in an ascended and rich way. So see, this is it. They call this hokey pokey, but listen, for the New Testaments and the New Old Testaments and the teachings, what do they tell you? That you're a child of God. You were created in his image. You are his child, whoever God is. He created you. So he is your father or she is, you know, coming into you, the light, whatever you want to call it. But that is your creator. And therefore, even your child, when it comes out of you, you're like, I made that. that. That's part of me, right? So why would you think that inside of you, in your heart, inside of you, that his kingdom does not live? This is why we have the good, that free will. It is your choice to accept it or not. And how do you do that? By accepting your brothers and sisters. I mean, the Bible still teaches you, oh, they're your brothers and sisters, but then people are reluctant to understand what that really means. How are they your brothers and your sisters if you are not one in the same? Wait a minute. The creator is our father, right? So then obviously we're brothers and sisters. We're connected. We're the same. Hmm. And it seems like there's some hard lines drawn. Why? This was a very interesting um, compilation put together. The kingdom is inside of you and it is outside of you. You literally manifest your outside circumstances from within. 
If you will not know yourselves, you dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty. The belief that outside events and people have control over a person's life keeps them from living the richness that is rightfully theirs. They manifest as they believe. Verse 27. If you do not fast from the world, you will not find the Father's domain. If we do not turn away from the things that disturb us and believe in the power within to change all things, we will continue to experience that reality in our lives. Verse 50. If they say to you, where did you come from? Say to them, we came from the light, the place where the light came into being on its own accord and established itself and became manifest through their image. So hold on. So dispel of your earthly belongings are in other teachings of Jesus, which means stop focusing on the material world that is in your reality construct and listen to me and you will find my kingdom. Same thing as what just was said. If they say, where do you come from? You come from light. Because what did Jesus say? In Gen- what did God say in Genesis? <laughs> Let there be light. If they say to you, is it you? Say, we are its children. We are the elect of the living father. If they ask you, what is the sign of your father in you? Say to them, it is movement and repose. The word light is used to portray the origin of humans. The light is the consciousness of each person manifested as a physical being. It is the all in all that exists as each individual. Hmm. Sounds funny, right? Uh, Very similar to things being said. Oh, I saw the laws of, of God because it was a bright burning bush. It was a light that I can't describe. Light, 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 light. Light simply is. Does not travel. It simply is. It is within everyone. Oh, angels glow. Come on. Why did they remove these things? Because if they, they, the reality construct, it's all the source of your creator who's outside of the construct that you created. Consciousness lives through us as activity and awareness. Verse 77, Jesus said, It is I who am the light which is above them all. It is I who am the all. From me did the all come forth, and unto me did the all extend. Split a piece of wood, and I am there. Lift up the stone, and you will find me there. So in other words, I am the beginning of everything, and you will find me everywhere. God is everywhere. So where's the difference with the teachings that they are allowing? None. But they're not straightforward. Sometimes texts are to be taken literally. Sometimes there is no hidden meaning. The other writings are telling you the same thing. They're just not that literal. Does does the creator not exist everywhere in every stone, under every rock, within every breathing, living thing? Yes. The stone is there because he made it. The light is there because he made it. You're speaking because he made it. So what is it so hard to believe from this or to understand from it? Oops, I went back. Gosh darn it. I am there. Stone, 
and you will find me there. This explains that the one consciousness lives within everything. What lives in him also lives within all other things. Verse 113. His disciples said to him, When will the kingdom come? Jesus said, It will not come by waiting for it. It will not be a matter of saying, Here it is, or there it is. Rather, the kingdom of the Father is spread out upon the earth, and men do not see it. Huh. We do not have the eyes to see it. Well, those that are in faith, you believe that everything that exists is because he allows it to exist. And we all believe in free will. So are we free willingly blind? This is the key. And this is the basis, if you look at it, of almost every single religion out there. Even the Torah has this. Even, even the Quran makes reference to this. So everybody knows what the secret sauce is of understanding how great the creator is. And no one's really applying it. No one's paying attention to the actual words. They're kind of like decoding it when there's nothing to decode here. We have always had the power within ourselves, but we have lost sight of it. It is not something that we have to wait to experience. This consciousness is already a part of all things, including each person. And sayings, walk in faith, not in sight. This is it. It's just different words. More, what does that mean? I have faith in God. Of course you do. He created everything. I mean, do you see it now? To unleash the force of the divine matrix in our lives, first, we have to understand how it works. And the science tells us how it works. Secondly, we must speak the language that the divine matrix recognizes, and science cannot tell us that. That comes from our past, from our culture, from our history, from those who have learned and used this language for thousands of years. So this is what we're doing right now. We're, lear we're learning how to speak. You mean pray, tap into that. Be one. We don't need any middlemen to speak to God. You know, we can, we need to find the right language, the right frequency the right way to be able to bathe in that. This is, this is it. When you embody the teachings from all versions of the Bible, when you embody them, that is it. Learning what did Jesus and what did the great masters say about this, this language? Because it's the same, whether you're talking Buddhist or Hindu or Christian Pre-Christian traditions, they're all telling us that there is a field of energy and that we have the language to use that field. This is an actual page out of the Gospel of Thomas. So we know that this, this ancient gospel actually existed. And you can, you can see some of the letters. These are Greek letters. You can actually read some of, if you know Greek, you can see some of the Greek letters right here. In the Gospel of Thomas, two very important keys. This was written uh, right around 300 uh, years after the time of Jesus. In this gospel, okay, so here, here's what we're doing. We've been in the Buddhist monasteries in Tibet, and they're telling us 
that we must, that feeling is the prayer, one. Two, that we must feel as if our prayers have already been answered. Okay, and now we're in an Egyptian monastery with the texts that used to be our tradition before they were edited. And we're going to look at the instructions that tell us how to do that. Okay, if we do that, is that good? Okay. Gospel of Thomas. If you have a copy of the Gospel of Thomas, this is verse 106, translated from the Nag Hammadi Library. And if you do not have a copy, it's in our books, uh, and you can you can go to any library and pick this up. The video is really grainy. Look at what the Lost Gospel of Thomas says. It says, when you make the two thought and emotion one. So the Gospel of Thomas is talking about thought and emotion. It's saying when you make your thought and your emotion one, look at what happens. You will say to the mountain, mountain move away and the mountain will move away saying that when you can marry your thought and your emotion into one single potent force, that is when you have the power to speak to the world. Secondly. Huh. Huh. So let's take a step back from this. You know, in all the teachings that Jesus has done, because God wills it, it happens. God Jesus was his child, as you are, but Jesus was taken, came here without the blinders of the reality construct that we are in with the prodigal sin. He came here with no prodigal sin, right? This is it. We're all sinners at first, so that sin are the blinders. If we, we can manifest through prayer. But in order for a prayer to stick, you have to combine it together. And how do we do that? If you say X, Y, Z is happening, you speak it into reality. You know, wearing t-shirts like I'm a loser or stuff like that. We may not see it, but it is so. Science tells us that our words have a frequency that affect water molecules and we are made mostly of water. This is science showing this. And this is things that have been said, but in other tales that we somehow have to decrypt or decode or make some sense of, when in fact, they simply are. It's, it's quite fascinating. When you make the two one, what are they talking about? What are the two? Let's go back to our image. The two, thought and emotion. When the two become one in our hearts. So think about it. Do you think if you hate and you think of hate that you can manifest hate? <laughs> yeah. What about love and thinking of love? That's the problem. Now you're going to say, but I can love. I can think about love, right? But do you really think about love or do you think about the exchange? See, unconditional love is completely different than conditional love. Unconditional love is so hard to achieve so hard. Parents have the closest relationship to unconditional love than anything, right? Parents, 
because you love your child regardless. If your child, you know, becomes a butcher and commits murder, you'll still go and visit your child. You'll still bring it cookies. You'll be praying for their salvation, right? So emotion and thought, because your thought, what, what have I said? Your logic, your thoughts are the biggest, biggest advocates to talk yourself out of anything. Self-talk, whatever you want to call that, that logic. Emotion is very unstable because it's prompted from within, you know, your, your gut right, is emotion. The way you respond is emotion. And a lot of it is propelled by your thoughts, right? The way you respond to things. Pure emotion, I mean, you can't replicate that. You can't think about having an emotion and doing it. Uh, you know, th that's when you're speechless, right? When you're so overwhelmed with emotion and you can't speak, but you speak, I guess, louder than your emotions, you know, like, you're doing microaggressions. You know, inside, they're suppressing their emotion to express the thoughts that have been pre-programmed in their mind. But how do you find that good balance of understanding how to merge the two? We simply, because we have this prodigal sin, it's really hard. There's no time in our life that we have, I mean, you could probably say you did, but in essence, you know, you did it because you think you're going to get something. Like, you know, times that I'll... um see someone on the street and I just got a coffee and they're looking like they're having a shitty day and I'll just hand it to them. You know, I wanted to give it to them here. Here you go. I didn't drink from it. Take it. You look like you're having a crappy day here outside on the sidewalk. Take it. Now in the back of our mind, we're like, Oh, that'll give me brownie points with God. Or maybe in the future, because I've done this, it'll come back to me. We know how the universe works. So if we put out good, it comes back. There's always that, you know, little, dark little corner of our mind that for some reason it seems that you know it 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 it's back there like for me for example i could tell you the only time that i was speechless and i couldn't control my emotions at all was when i saw the gofundme i was shocked i couldn't process it i still can't process i really can't process it and you know other people are like well just be thankful or i am but i can't process it because it wasn't something I ever expected in my life. For the first time in my life, I've experienced that emotion and thought, but my emotion overcame my thought. I can't even speak about it. I'm still, you know, overwhelmed. My emotion got the best of me. I'm, I'm still crying about it. Seriously. Every time I think about it, I cry. And it's because I'm overwhelmed and my mind isn't finding a balance. It's being overwhelmed. So it's all about having a balance of, of love. And it's so hard for people to master. You know, I, 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 as I said, I've been raised by the church. Nuns raised me. Priests raised me. I have religious leaders, like actual leadership. You know, he takes care of Christ's tomb in Jerusalem, right? And, and so I'm well dipped into everything. Oh, you're not allowed to do this. You have to fast for this. You have to do this. And I'm like, now why would, you know, I always question everything, right? But that's what sinners do anyway. So I am well-versed in this. I've had the conversation about the gospel when my uncle let me see it and see it again and see it again and see it again. And I sit there and I ask these questions and he's like, well, we can't have that because then people take it into like more pagan things. Like they're more powerful. And I was like, but they're children of God. 
So why wouldn't you want them to see it? Well, because, you know, people take it in other ways and people are innately evil. And I said, oh, wait a minute. Let's have this conversation. And this is a guy who is a leader in a global, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, um, they need guidance. People need guidance because they have the prodigals. No, I think that everyone is responsible enough to be able to understand and the struggle like Buddhists, they sit there and chant all day trying to put their thoughts and their feelings together. But how do you do that? If I fast and I'm unbound by earthly bounds, but being human and sinning is that earthly bound having that reality construct. Right? So I'm just saying this is quite a fascinating video. Hence why I'm doing an extended Tory says, because I believe that it's very important for everyone to, understand how what we say we speak into reality and how things are done and how they affect us because you know i see a lot of people i have faith i have this but then they're there saying oh we like totally lost oh we don't have control of this we have control of everything because he said so we create the feelings in our bodies when thought and emotion become one You'll see how to do that in just a minute. Let's go back to the Gospel of Thomas, another verse. Now, this is verse 48. It says almost the same thing. This was so important that it was recorded at least three different times in the same Gospel. Look at what this says. If the two make peace with each other in this one house. When Jesus is talking about the house or the temple, what is he talking about? What is he talking about? Precisely you, you are the house, you are the temple. If the two make peace with each other in this house, if thought and emotion become one, if they make peace with each other in this house, look what happens. They will say to the mountain, move away, and it will move away. He's telling us again. In a completely different verse, how powerful it is to marry thought and emotion. But they still haven't told us how. How do you do this? That's the next piece. In the early Christian Bible, your Bible today, there is a passage. How many have heard, ask and you shall receive? Have you heard that before? Ask and you shall receive. Have you heard that? I know people that ask and ask and ask and nothing happens. Because the asking is not done with the voice. The asking is not done, please, please bring this to my world. That's not asking. To ask, we must speak to the field, to the divine matrix in the language that the field recognizes in a language that's meaningful, the field doesn't recognize our voice, it recognizes the power of our heart. Remember this morning, our heart, we have a feeling, creates electrical waves, magnetic waves. That's the language the field recognizes. So when you create the feeling in your heart as if your prayer is already answered, that creates the electrical and the magnetic waves that bring that answer to you. In the Bible that you have today, the King James Version, John 16, 24, 
what you have is the condensed version. You have the edited version. The edited version looks like this. This is the edited version. Whatsoever ye ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. Okay, this is the edited version. This is so amazing to me because they took out the two sentences that tell us how to ask. In the fourth century, when the edits happened, they took those two sentences out. Would you like to see those two original sentences? Okay, we'll go back to the Aramaic part. into the original Aramaic and we'll look at a new translation. This is the original Aramaic. It begins, it looks very similar. So this is the retranslated version with the missing pieces. All things that you ask straightly, directly from inside my name, you will be given. It says, so far you've not done this. Because if we ask with our voice, we have not done this. So basically, um, we have been taught to, to um, I mean, think of it this way. When we talk with our parents, right? As children, we're taught to abide by their rules and ask them with respect, right? And as we grow older, we have these conversations and we express to them our wants and our needs. In the same sense is how we should do it. Because when you're talking, say, to your mom or your dad about, you know, something, let's pick something trivial, like, oh, I really want this coffee mug, right? It, the coffee mug, just looking at it makes me feel great. It feels like it's going to be bigger and deeper. Like, you know, hey, mom, I, I really want this coffee cup because I feel it. It's so good. And I really want it, right? Then your mom will be understanding your your thought and, and, your, and your emotion about this mug and will say, here, my child, take this mug. I, I understand it because you're, you're, you're cool with me. But if you go to your mom and say, hey, mom, can, you, can I please have this mug? And it's like, why are you asking me for a mug? Do, do you get what I'm saying? I mean, I've had that. I actually used that as a kid. I would sit there and tell my mom about these books. She hated me reading all the time. But um, this, is, this is how it is. Like when you're excited about something, when you feel the emotion tied to something, however it makes you feel, um, and your thought about it, then it comes. And, you know, I know it sounds super trivial and I just had this train of thought, but right before the day that I found out about the GoFundMe, I kid you not, and days prior to it, and my, my friend Matt can attest to this a lot. So can Millie and Gavin, because that's all I did was complain about the fact that I'm in a car rental, you know, I can probably afford a car payment. And because of this, you know, nasty financial, you know, divorce part, no one's giving it to me. And it's like, but I'm, I'm worthy of it. I can sustain it. I just need it. And this is like so bad. And I'm going to be saving forever and ever and ever. And my thought was that I felt the emotion, how the necessity was there for me. And then it's like, not only did it come, but it came in the one that I've been wanting for years and writing cards saying, Hey, want to give me like, just give me the cheapest version. I'll totally tweet about it all the time. Just give me a car. And, and so it came, I, I never put the request out. I never said, Hey God, you know, Hey, totally like a car, you know, uh, he knows what I need. 
He knows everything I need, but did I ask? I probably did by saying, you know, you know, all this heartache and emotion behind it. And, but I'm worthy. And my thoughts, like I'm totally worthy of it, but there's a hindrance and I would really like it. I'm just saying now this is pretty, just, this was just a train of thought, but it kind of makes sense because when we pray, we sit there and we don't feel worthy of it. Right. We really don't. When we pray, we don't. I, I catch myself all the time when I pray. I'm like, oh, I'm asking for things that I'm not worthy. And then, you know, when you ask for things for other people, you know, sometimes you're like, well, I'm not even worthy to ask for someone else. Honestly, because I did this or I did that or I've done this and I've done that. So in, in essence, there's like this little unspoken portion of it. And and it's it's... I've said it before. It's the way we resonate. And this is why psychological operations are so great. They overtake one of the sides, your thought or your emotion. So look at how they've attacked our nation, right? And attacked our communities and our ability to prosper and, and, and be healthy and happy. They've given us all of these obstacles that are either emotionally charged or logically charged, Right. And they feed you with all this logic or all this emotion and you're, you're unable to marry the two, right? You're unable to marry the two and strike a good balance. And this is why it is so incredible as to what we're understanding here together. Um, because I stumbled upon this and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I haven't revisited those scrolls in a very long time. Our make portions are kind of if he, but again, every time you read something, you read it with different eyes, different experience, and therefore learn more. Now, here's the piece that was edited. Here is what was lost. Look at these two very powerful sentences. Ask without hidden motive and be surrounded by your answer. Be enveloped by what you desire that your gladness be full. Look at what it's saying. It's not saying to speak a word. It's saying to be surrounded, to feel as if. If you are surrounded, you are feeling as if. Your answer has already happened. Be enveloped. If you want the perfect relationship in your life, if you want the healing in the body of your loved ones, Feel the feeling of what it is like as if that has already happened. Be enveloped by what you desire because that is when your thought and your emotion become one. You think the thought of the healing in your loved ones and you feel the love of that thought. They become one and that is the language that this field recognizes. Does that make sense? Are you okay with that? You're going to see an example of this, another example here in just a moment. And remember, let's go back to like the quantum thought. Is it heads or tails? I say it's heads 100%. So it's always going to be heads because I said so. Remember the guy that said it? This is how quantum mechanic works too. Ask without hidden motive. What does that mean? Hidden motive. Ask without judgment. This is precisely what the Buddhists are telling us. Ask without the judgment of the right or the wrong or the good or the bad. Ask without the ego. 
Ask from the heart. And a lot of us say, well, we do. We really don't. I don't. I admit it. Sometimes I don't. There's always like, well, I know this, so it's got to be this. We always have a bit of ego regardless. I know best. And sometimes that takes over. All of us do. It's, it's quite, it's a difficult balance to strike. Very difficult balance to strike, isn't it? And that is the challenge. And it's the same balance that we find difficult to, to strike in mathematics too. Mathematics is as is numbers. We don't know where they came from, how they came from, but they seem to make sense. And they have rules that are there and we don't know why they're there, but they're there. And we just accept them because there's no way around those rules. And so here we are where we're given the rule book and we're not understanding how to create those rules. And in order to create those rules, you have to, to see how they were created. You have to fight it. Remember, the best thing that we could do is when someone tells you something, what you should be going to do is try to prove them wrong. Because the more you try to prove it wrong, the more right you see it is. And I, that is the balance that many people should strike. And, oh, well, I know all this. I've read all this. I understand all this. Why can't I do it? That's the struggle every person has. How do you demolish a reality construct? How do you demolish it and understand just how powerful you are? It, because he's your dad. You ask him, he'll be like, of course. What kind of father will say no? Right? A father of love. He doesn't hate you. He doesn't punish you. You punish yourself. He lets you punish yourself. Self-sabotage, putting yourself in situations, making decisions. It's all free will, right? You chose it. There you go. So, uh, you know, just like our nation right now, let's, let's take it to that level. Not on the spiritual level. Take it on the nation level of governance. How awesome was it to know that you had a Kiverniti, a, a person that was nudging and leading a majority, right? That gave you the ability to self-govern, to have your voice heard, to dictate your own economy, to prosper, to advance, to say, no, you have every equal chance as everybody else does, and I'm going to make it happen. Or, hey, no, we don't have to buy from there because they said so. We could do what we like. You want to open up a business? You should. And I shouldn't punish you for it. I should reduce your taxes because by you creating a new business, you're creating more jobs. And therefore, you're creating the prosperity of many. Of course, ask and you shall receive. I will do that. I will create the foundation for you to grow. Yet, for some reason, that all went away. Why? Is it his fault? Is it the evil people's fault? Because they are far less evil than there are good. So the question is why? Because we didn't work for it. We didn't work for it. We didn't. We're not doing anything for it. We get lazy. Oh, well, he's in charge. He's going to smack him about and we're good. He's only as powerful as you are. Your leader can't lead without you leading with him. You are the soldiers of Iwo Jima. And in order to hold that flag up, you got to put the work in. That's why I say freedom is only the right of those that fight for it. Basically it. You've got to have the desire. And desire is the marrying of emotion and thought. That's how it works. Is this meaningful to you? Is this helpful at all? Let me give you an example then. Because to be, if it says be surrounded 
That means to feel as if. To feel as if. Now, if that sounds too religious, because it's from the Bible, we spoke, spoke this morning uh, about Neville, uh, the, the philosopher Neville, early in the 20th century, his book, The Power of Awareness. Look at what he says. It's the same thing. Neville says, you must make your future dream a present fact. Now, by assuming the feeling of your wish fulfilled, to come from the place that it's already happened. Now, this is what those practitioners did with that cancerous tumor. I want to just elaborate on this a little bit. When those practitioners healed the woman with her tumor this morning, they did not judge the cancer as wrong or bad or right or good. There was no judgment. They accept that tumor as a possibility, one of many possibilities, because in the quantum world, all things are possible. So they didn't say, bad cancer, you must go away. Or we're going to operate on you, or we're going to use radiation on you. They didn't do that. They accepted the cancer as it was, without hidden motive, without judgment. And they said, now we're going to choose a new reality by feeling, assuming the feeling as if the woman is already healed. So what they did was they felt the feeling as if the woman was fully healed, fully enabled, fully capacitated, already happened. And the, the chant that they were using, wassa, wassa loosely translates into the words already done, already done. And then when they got excited, they said, mate, 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 means now, 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 not a year from now, not a month from now, not five minutes from now, now in the quantum world now. And her body responded, it must. Physical reality must respond to the language that it understands. So in the Buddhist traditions, they are telling us the quality of the feeling. And in the Judeo-Christian traditions, they are giving us the instructions to be surrounded, to be enveloped, how to create that feeling. And when you put those all together, it's something that happens in our hearts, not in our minds. Feeling as if the prayer is already answered with no judgment and no ego and feeling from the result. Feeling from the result as if it's already happened. Are there any martial artists here in the room? Karate experts? I studied martial arts uh, when I was in my 20s and 30s, a little bit in my 40s and 50s. Have you seen martial artists when they demonstrate their focus? by breaking a concrete block. Have you seen that? You've all seen that before, right? Okay, here's the secret. Here is the secret to breaking that block. When the martial artist is focused on that block, the very last thing that they are thinking is about their hand hitting the block. 
Because if they think about that, they know it will hurt. So they focus on what happens after their hand has passed through the block. As if it has already happened. They focus on a place below the block and feel the feeling as if their hand is already in that place. That is a metaphor, that is an equivalent for what we're doing with the power of emotion. Feeling as if. The Isn't it interesting how scientists are able to tell us all this? How he even talked about the quantum. Because if you feel that you've lost, that's, that's the majority of the battle. You know, when you feel like you've lost. And when people take the best of you, this is why fear porn works so well. This is why everything can shift. But in reality, his will is always done and nothing can stop what's coming. You could delay it. You could delay it by hijacking what the people want, what the people say as a collective, but it'll always be. So again, the future, I've said this before, the past is Mars, the Earth is present, the Venus is future. They all coexist. And so every choice you make right now will have a repercussion on the next. That's how you have to see it. That, have to, that is how you have to understand it. A lot of people had said, you know, if we all get together and think the same thing, if we all get together and pray, but the thing is, when do we actually really pray, okay? When? When can we actually manifest our prayer? It's at the time that we're not focusing on the prayer. We're not focusing on the hand hitting the block, but that it's actually happened. And this is how timelines exist and how they speed up, how they slow down, how they get selected. It's how we want it to be done. When it seems impossible, when something seems impossible, believe it or not, that's when the most opportunity to make it possible is. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, so-and-so got confirmed. I really don't care because he's not going to affect my nation because he's not going to be around. But Biden's doing this. I really don't care because he's not really in charge. So I really don't care. I can find comedy in it. I can see what is necessary in order to make others see it. But that's the way it is. It is as is. I'm filing these lawsuits. I know I'm going to win. Because in the reality constructed by the many, and it is accepted by the many, there are some things that simply are. They're rules. They're boxes. And if you can box someone in their own box, that's how you win and collapse the reality that they've created. I mean, take a step back for a second and look at our politics right now. They're a joke. You can't say, wait a minute, hold on, damn, this is like the worst movie ever. But you are watching movie. And it's projected 
by those that want you to believe that this is the reality that exists when it's not. It's not. What we need to find is the ability to overcome that construct and understand. I've said this many times before. I, I don't think I'm scared of anything. I mean, I'm scared of spiders, right? But not really. If I'm stuck in a room, I'll probably kill them, even though I will, you know, maybe I might have some urinary trickle, scream, you know, or whatever. I'll still get over it. So there's really nothing that I actually fear. There is nothing. And if you think about it, there's nothing that can scare you. Oh, monster will scare me. Yeah, for a second. But then it's like, what? What, Godzilla is going to scare me? Damn. Well, I'm going to go out swinging. I'm just saying there's nothing really that can take me back to give me real fear. What are you scared of? Honestly scared of. Like, oh my gosh, you know, I'm petrified. There's really nothing you're petrified of. Are you scared of, you know, someone taking you out? Nobody can take you out because you said so. Are you scared of a car accident? No one's going to hit your car because you said so. And if you walk like that, nah, it's really there. This is why they're so loud and so in your face right now. They're so in your face that they're saying, look, we're doing all of this and you can't do diddly squat about it. Look, we're on top of you. Ha ha. And you're just like, what? Because you're seeing things that shouldn't be making sense. You're just like, are you kidding? This guy is in a basement. So now you're going to show me some really great AI and tell me that he's giving a speech when he's not even allowed to answer questions. Because they're flexing their power to those of you that know what's up. They're psyoping you. Hardcore. Psyoping is controlling your thoughts or your emotions. Either or. They're successful. And they dabble in both. The emotion by being so brazen and saying, what are you going to do about it? I'm just going to shut you up. And you're just like, but, but, look at me. I'm bigger than you. No, you're not. You're the ant. I'm the giant. Because I'm not doing this because I'm evil and want to control people. I'm not doing this because I want to fill up my bank account. I'm not doing this because, you know, I want to play video games all day, which I really do, but I'm not. I'm not, you know, I'm saying this to you, Pelosi, Biden, whatever, because I believe that all of us have the right to dictate our own economy, that we have the right to a full and unfettered, you know, access to information and knowledge. I believe that everyone is uh, uh, allowed to have access to health. These are the things that I believe in. And because I want them, I'm going to damn well demand them. And I will put you in your own reality box and you can't get out of it. That's how we move forward because we have to play the rules. It's all a game. And if there's rules in chess, you got to play the right chess game. And what you have to do is know how to box your opponent in. Both of you know the rules. Both of you know how to box someone in. Both of you know everybody's triggers to, to make them move the wrong pawn or anything. Mistakes happen all the time. And that's the other thing. When you go to do something, one thing you should never fear is failure. Failure, ha <laughs> ha. Mistakes, ha. Huh? Those are badges of honor. Those are like seasoning on your steak. That makes victory even better, especially when it's hard. So 
you know, as we say we want control, as we say we want this, you know why we don't have it? Because there's also a part of us saying, damn, that's like a lot of hard work. Like, I don't know if I want to take that spot as a state senator, man, because then it's going to be busy. I don't know about the school council. I kind of like not having to do it. And, you know, maybe I'll just, you know, not do it. It's, 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 it's all about why, because you're too lazy, more so that you feel like you're going to fail or you're not good enough. And, and that's what's it. And hence why when we take really, really harsh subjects like death, like disease, all constructs, all manufactured, when we take all of that and we see it with humorous eyes and with eyes of compassion, um, it's a lot easier for us to swallow, right? Really hard pills. So we always have to lose battles in order to win wars. And what everyone right now is going through is quite biblical. You're going through a lot of battles. And ugh, the more battles you lose, dang, the sweeter the victory of the war. And that's how it is. So, you know, you have to put them in their own construct box. Kind of like if someone's like, you're not wearing a mask, you know, and you're in Texas and they're like, you can't come in and say, well, are you discriminating against me for not wearing an article of clothing? It's our policy. So you're discriminating. You know, I'd really love one of my Texans to go to a store and be refused entry for not wearing a mask. And then I want them to file a complaint. Any, any one of you Texans record that you've been refused, tell them to tell you that it's policy and you're not allowed. You can easily file a discrimination lawsuit against a private company that demands that you wear article of clothing. Remember, the mask is an article of clothing. These are, put them in their own box. Use their words. Use the weapons that they have emotionally charged idiots with and put you down with against them. That's what you need to do. Against them. Use it against them. Say, oh, are you discriminating against me for not wearing an article of clothing? No, it's a mask. But... Uh, are you saying that I'm a danger to the health of other people? Are you a medical doctor? I'm sorry. These are the things. You put them in their box. This is how you win. Use that emotion that you have of the unfairness, of the justice that you seek, of the lies, of the betrayal, and marry that with your thought of, all right, they've unjustly dealt with me by doing this. I'm going to use that against them. Marry those two. And hopefully it works. This is what we're here to do. We're here to change what has been going on for a very long time, as you can see, because these wars have been fought before, from the Phoenicians to the ancient Greeks slash Romans to now. And the center of these wars, the center of these nations, states, nations, has shifted only because of geostrategic location, as they said. So today was a super extended show. I got carried away. Like I said, I could talk forever. Um, I'm just really excited that I, that I found that video and I really wanted to share that with you. It's, um, it's quite important to know just how science, math, and faith are pretty much all in one. You can't be a real scientist, can't be a real mathematician without faith because you walk in faith, not in sight. 
That's the way it always is. So in the end, we will do whatever it takes. Right, guys? For those of you on Twitch, we'll go on a raid right after this. Falling too fast to prepare for this. Tripping in the world could be dangerous. Everybody's circling his poetry race. Negative, nepotism.